Welcome, welcome, everybody. Uh, Viva la Vibe Tribe. I like that. We could call the Wednesday night group the Vibe Tribe. Maybe that could just be the name for the all the podcast audience, Interverse, too. I mean, it's always about the vibe, right? Not just for Vibrant. And tonight, we're going to be talking with Mystic Mark from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. And we've also got Mario of Symbolic Studies on deck. Mark has been involved in some projects recently. Really for a long time, I think his research and personal interest has taken him into the depths and the crypt of the Skull and Bones Society, the not-so-secret group from Yale University. Mark knows way more about this. I honestly am kind of offended by them because they had the audacity to steal my birthday and make it their special little club number. So I don't like that very much. And uh, so I've never really dove deep into that. I was like, okay, they seem like assholes. So that's probably good to know. Mario, on the other hand, has a lot of Illuminati symbolism fresh on the mind, having done a pretty recent presentation on that particular subject. I think there's some great crossover there. And then, of course, my main man, Gabriel, he's basically, you know, into everything. <laughs> so uh, what's up, gentlemen? How's everybody doing? Well, you know. Merry Wednesday to you all. And then hi to everybody in the chat also. Please um, do us a favor, share the podcast or stream with your friends, whether or not you're here live or checking out the replay. You guys are my marketing department. So really appreciate sharing it, especially, you know, let me give you guys the, the tip. Better than sharing it in a mass way or to a group, I would like you to share it to one specific person in a direct message or a conversation where you say, I know you and I know you'd like this. If you can think of anybody and want to do that, I appreciate it very much. I mean, you don't have to, but I'm I'm telling you, you probably should. Thank you. <laughs> and welcome, everybody. What's up, my friends? How are you guys doing? I'm solid, dude. No complaints. Happy to be here. Very interesting. Yeah, Mario, subject. I know you asked already before we went live, but I think you could go up a little. Okay. Uh, right -wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do People that. People in the chat will tell us. Mark, cool. welcome back, dude. How have you been? It's been a while since we had a hang. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back here. Good to see Gabe as always. And Mario and I have done a show together back uh, last year. So good to see you again, yeah. Mario. Uh, you, I'm well. I didn't know 322 was your birthday, Chance. Happy birthday. Belated. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yep, yeah, I happen to be cool. on a full moon. So I got a Libra moon. You got a Libra sun. We have a nice balance going on there. Yeah, very cool. I uh, on on three twenty two. I was in New Haven giving a tour because, as you mentioned, three twenty two is their uh, number. Although that date isn't significant to them, that is their number. Uh, but allegedly, rumors have it that on 322, Skull and Bones may conduct a sort of uh, cannibalistic ritual of some kind. That's just rumor. I haven't seen that in any books about Skull and Bones. Not that that's the only source of info. But yeah, my friend Amos, who introduced me to all this initially, he told me a sort of grim story that on 322 every year, the senior class that's involved with Skull and Bones goes up to the tallest building in New Haven, which is the Connecticut Financial Center. And I'll show you guys an image of this building. Maybe Mario can back me up here. But the the rooftops of this building look almost like the, the pyramids at Giza. 
And again, you know, the, the symbol of pyramids is, is, you know, huge. You could write numerous books about just pyramids alone. But they go up to this building, to the top floor, underneath, directly underneath these pyramidal rooftops. And allegedly, they take a freshly severed, maybe still beating human heart from, you know, their various cadavers at the Yale Hospital. And they uh, slice that heart up and each member of Skull and Bones as a sort of rite of passage consumes a piece of that heart as the sun rises on March 22nd. And that's one of many of the, the rituals that they may or may not commit Allegedly. their initiation. Yeah, I mean, you know, whether the only or not piece they- of heart I want is like Legend of Zelda. I want to collect four and increase my life capacity. Well, it could be like a cow heart and this is all, you know, just a whole lot of about nothing, you know? I mean, either way, you know, if you had me eat a raw piece of meat, that would probably be a life-changing event for me. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think whatever's going on, uh, on top of that rooftop on March 22nd, it's significant. So yeah, who knows, you know, chance, maybe the day you were born, that ritual took place. I'm not sure, but you know, wherever you want to start, however you want to start, we can get into this. I, I could give you guys a sort of tour around New Haven and all the weird stuff I've researched. Uh, I've talked about this with you before though, haven't I? Haven't we had this conversation at least once? Like we talked a little bit about like how I started podcasting and how the whole skull and bones thing kind of got me interested in conspiracies in the first place. I think we have, but probably didn't spend like a whole episode dedicated to the topic was most likely touched on that whole story of that ritual makes me think of, uh, Owen Benjamin has a story about eating a, he caught a rabbit and, uh, ate its heart (laughs) like right there fresh right after he'd killed it. And he had dreams about, being a rabbit and going into rabbit holes and like being scared like a rabbit. So wow. I personally, uh, you know, the, all the zombie movies, they want to eat brains. There may be something to the consumption of living organs because, you know, we don't think this way when we mostly avoid eating organs. My experience working with people's energy fields is that your organs have a personality to them. They're like little minds of their own and they work on their own yin and yang polarity, uh, like the liver. The liver works with the energy that has the polarity of anger or assertiveness, you know, and all of them have that type of personality, almost a left brain, right brain of their own, the way that our brain does. And they just work with a particular flavor or color of energy flavor <laughs> slip. I mean, talking about eating organs. Anyway, that's just fascinating that that might be a ritual or something like that. It wouldn't surprise me. It sounds like the type of thing that would have been from the old world carried into this current world and kind of reserved for those who knew and everybody else is just eating your supermarket McDonald's type of thing. That's a great point to make and a good segue because, you know, before we can understand Skull and Bones, we have to understand Yale and, and how a group like Skull and Bones can even exist in the first place. And they, found a home within the third oldest private college in the United States next to Harvard and the College of William and Mary. The college 
Village of William and Mary was where the first secret society, I guess you can call it a fraternal secret society within the college system. And that was the Phi Beta Kappa, which uh, over time kind of evolved into, you know, what we consider now like the Greek fraternal organization. So there's, there's no doubt that, uh, that, you know, within the United States, this sort of Greek mystery school template was first birthed in a place like Yale University and Harvard as well, to a lesser extent. You got to keep in mind that Harvard and Yale were both founded as schools for ministers. So they were initially talking a lot about, you know, Christian ideology and, and within a Christian lens, you know, that's primarily how they saw the world until they started adopting maybe like the classics from Greek and Rome and, and getting into the liberal arts. For the most part, it was a sort of Christian, uh, you know, worldview. But, you know, we have a sort of, let's say, filtered idea of what that means. And things like witchcraft and alchemy may not necessarily, you know, nowadays seem like they fit within that Christian uh, life. But in those days, magic, divination, alchemy, these were all things that could get you one step ahead. And they were seen to be possibly good things that were, you know, ordained by God so long as the person conducting this magical ritual was maybe a priest or somebody who was connected to the church. So, you know, to bring up like consuming body parts, this idea of Paracelsian alchemy was actually practiced in New England back in the day. Uh, and yeah, who knows? I mean, how that sort of practice sort of made its way into modern medicine, uh, maybe subtly, maybe behind closed doors. Yeah, I think for the most part, you see people being led away from a carnivore diet into, you know, more plant-based diet by the same people who, you know, were historically eating organs, human organs. And I, I eat meat. I think eating organs are, you know, essential. Like if you don't eat some organs every now and then you're going to sort of be low in iron and other you know, deficiencies. I'm not a health expert, but the point I'm trying to make is this is stuff that was not far-fetched when Yale became a university. As a matter of fact, the first governor of the state of Connecticut when it was a colony was John Winthrop the Younger. He was an alchemist, and he was one of the first members of the Royal Society. So right at the, the beginning of Connecticut, we have a leader who's going around looking for you know, different various items to go in these potions and recipes. Back then, they they saw like minerals as more of a, uh, I guess, on the leading edge of healing in science, whereas plants had been tried and tested and you know, tried and true, really. I mean, plants were the primary way that people sought out healing. And they thought, well, this is new and novel, so minerals must be the next best thing. And 
Uh, I think that's where we see the the pharmaceutical era that we're in now sort of develop and begin. You know, these people who are looking for a cure-all, one quick fix. You know, they're working all day. They're relying on labor. They're relying on their own cunning and abilities out in this new frontier. So the idea of a quick cure-all was very appealing. And guys like John Winthrop the Younger did a a great amount of healing using the knowledge that they were able to gather. Um, He was obsessed with using like, I guess you would call it, you know, quicksilver, mercury, right? And uh, some other like antimony, I think is the other one. It's a mineral that was used as medicine back then. And I, I just I want to point out really quick, like this is an interesting direction for it to go because when you pointed out mysticism and Christianity, the origins of Christianity are with the therapeutic of Egypt. Actually, there are early church fathers quoted as saying that these therapeutic were already had the scriptures and that the, you know, Christianity was modeled after what they were doing. So, you know, that was before some further rebranding went on, went down and they acted like it was all a very original thing mm-hmm. to Rome. Right. But what the, what the point I'm trying to make here is just that this idea of healing and even like mir- miraculous healing, <laughs> quick and easy fix type healing. It seems that that was always part of the game uh, with mysticism and with Christianity. And that maybe even part of the reason for that is because some of the uh, individuals involved, like with what we're discussing in the Skull and Bones organization, perhaps have lifestyles that are uh, so antithetical to nature in certain ways, in the sense that morality is built into the universe. And if you break the moral codes of the universe, kind of like Star Wars, you start to decay and become like Darth Vader and it makes you sick. It makes you sick to be evil. So they might be very intrigued in the quick fixes and the miraculous easy fixes. And then that also is a kind of a power move because if you control the, if you're the gatekeepers of how people see their avenue towards getting healthy, you know, or not, and <laughs> you have all these trade secrets and guild science about what does and doesn't work and how the body functions and the average people are just have to come to you, the gatekeepers very much the same as gatekeepers on your spiritual life. You know, there's a lot of parallels there between the the healers and the, the mystics and the Christians and what have you. Tons, tons of parallels. And, you know, keep in mind the people that were coming to settle the new world, they were, you know, at first idealists, who saw this place as a chance to rebuild uh, a utopia, maybe a temp on this like open template uh, that they could sort of fit into what they saw as prophetic destiny seamlessly and avoid maybe the wrath that was due to the, you know, their enemies back in Europe, the people they were fleeing, the, the church, the monarchy and so on. And then after that, as things progress, you have a war that takes place in Europe and, you know, Oliver Cromwell eventually takes over and then is killed. And they start sending all these, you know, Protestants and criminals and all these different people that they deemed like, you know, okay, you guys lost. We're the Anglican church now. Get out of, get out of Dodge, you know, because otherwise you're not going to fare well here. And for the most part, 
It was like, yeah, why not go to the new world? There's so little land here. It's all owned. We don't want to work on someone else's property. Let's just go get our own land. So you have this whole melting pot of kind of like has-beens and, you know, know, would-be-nots and like weirdos and, you know, people who just didn't fit in in the old world. Uh, along with these religious exiles and then, you know, just straight up criminals and pirates and things like that. So, yeah, the new world was a weird kind of rough place. And uh, now we're given this kind of storybook fictional version of it, like buckle hats and squanto standing around, you know, slicing turkey and sharing squash. And it just didn't go down that way. Right. And skull and bones you know, formed out of Yale. And it really was a continuation of a process that began, you know, way before any of these ships even set sail for the new world. You know, according to some of the sources I've been looking into, there's evidence that all sorts of different cultures were here in America before Columbus. Right. But that's an entirely separate conversation. Now, when it comes to Yale and the Native Americans, sort of an important point to focus in on when it comes to Skull and Bones. Because when I first learned about Skull and Bones, it was through a Native American gentleman who was praying for Geronimo, whose skull was decapitated, taken from its grave, and brought to New Haven. And I you know, for years thought, why would they do that kind of thing? You know, back then the Native Americans were, uh, at least we're told, if you go and look at the church downtown in New Haven, there's three churches. One of them's been there since the beginning. The other two are probably just as old. And now they have a big sign that says, you know, Quinnipiac named New Haven in 1640. It was called Quinnipiac because the Native Americans there were like, hey, you're our friends. Come on, let's all hang out. You know, at that at that time, they were like, you know, little men in, in, in big woods, you know, like they were not the, the big men on campus. These natives, they were f- afraid of the Mohawks. They were afraid of the Pequot. You know, they were at a time in their stage of history where things were not going good, you know, and and. The Native Americans had a, a sort of heyday, uh, and there are a lot of theories on why exactly when the you know colonists arrived that they were in such a state of you know maybe disarray. Uh, but this tribe, the Quinnipiac, they were like, "Yeah, come on down, we need your help," you know. So they they kind of worked it out and were a part of the New Haven community in the beginning, but then things kind of went south, and everybody began to really fear the Native Americans and they started building walls around New Haven and that's when the the big Indian Wars began. And uh yeah, it, it was a, it was sort of interesting cuz a 100 years before the American Revolution, the Native Americans had their own revolution where they were like, "All right, we're sick of these colonists. Let's start fighting them and get our land back," you know, and and they they did. They fought and there was a series of wars that, I mean, in a sense are ongoing. I mean, there was no uh, ceasefire. Uh, the, the Native Americans are now living on military bases in reservations, essentially prisoners of a war that hasn't ended. 
So, you know, this is very important, especially considering all the connections to the military industrial complex that Yale and Skull and Bones has. So anyways, Yale was was one of the first places where missionaries were trained and they sent these missionaries to a place called the Stockbridge Indian School, where they would convert Native Americans to Christianity. And they would send those Native Americans out to other tribes in an attempt to convert more Native Americans to Christianity. And this helped justify moving the uh, moving the Native Americans off their land because they're like, all right, well, you can either come and be a part of our churches and live in our towns or not. Because, you know, if you're not Christian, you, you don't you don't follow God's laws. You're not a part of God's laws. You're not protected by his laws. And because these, some of these Native Americans were really smart, I mean, some of them graduated from Harvard and they had just learned English. You know, I mean, Harvard wasn't that incredible back then. I mean, it was a, one of the first of its kind in the new world, but it, it, it's not it wasn't what it is today. But still, that was a tremendous achievement for those Native Americans to learn, uh, you know, as much as they did and, and, you know, why they converted. There's a number of reasons for that. but. It, it kind of made the case that, okay, not all of these Native Americans are, you know, just like spear chucking savages, because that's initially what they wanted to paint them all as. And then you find out, no, these these guys are very educated. And these ideas started to blossom around that time that maybe the Native Americans were like crypto uh Babylonians or Sumerians who had survived the flood and and made it all. That's the way an out. interesting, very right. interesting idea. So started and, hearing uh, some Doctor Longo stuff, and mm. he he does a good job talking about some of the possibilities in there as well. Yeah, um, you know, like maybe the reason why the natives weren't doing so well when the colonists showed up is because there was already some shit that had gone down, <laughs> you know, from people in boats coming over and. And uh, paving the way. Right. Who knows? Right. And people who've been following my work, they might know. I've done some interviews with uh, a Native American named Lauren Jeffries, who talks about the Chinese coming here and possibly being the, the, the reason why the mound builders disappeared, whether by accident or on purpose. Maybe they, they spread uh, smallpox to the mound builders because we know the Chinese not only had they contracted smallpox very long ago in the BC times, I think like 300 something BC, they had also figured out that if you take a scab and break it up and shoot it down the back of somebody's throat, you can inoculate them from smallpox so that they don't get it again. Right. So, you know, they have that. Allegedly. Yeah. What maybe the ball (laughs) starts turning and they're like, Hmm, okay, we can, you know, infect people with this stuff as a type of warfare. Right. So, you know, they wrote the art of war, Sun Tzu uh, around that same time. So anyways, I'm not saying that they're responsible for the mound builders. There are other people who've, who've made that, you know, theory. I'm just, you know, putting it out there. If people want to follow that thread, they can, but there are other people who've suggested similar things. This guy up in Newfoundland, uh, who I just spoke with, he's talked to me about the Beothic people who disappeared in a similar fashion. Uh, even though some of them are still alive today, if you go on Wikipedia and look them up, it'll say that they're an extinct tribe, that they do not exist anymore. Uh, and, and he says that this is a part of, you know, this 
campaign to either Christianize or genocide the peoples that were here, especially the ones that might have given some kind of, uh, you know, evidence of this old world relationship between, you know, Native Americans or what we're told are Native Americans and, and the European countries prior to Columbus, right? Because that would throw off any of these political, you know, standings that they had here, right? You have all this land that, oh, as far as these treaties and these charters are concerned, you know, we're the first people to discover them. So they're ours. Now, if you have all these tribes that contest that because they say, oh, no, but we've been we have nets that we got from the Vikings 600 years ago. Here's proof. Look at these nets. You know, we didn't invent these nets. The Vikings gave them to us. Right. There's one example I can name probably seven or eight more. But why this is important, why this pertains to Skull and Bones is because you see groups like the Smithsonian Institution. You see groups like the American uh, Philosophical Society. You know, these are the groups that sort of create the narrative and then maintain that narrative as America becomes a country and then beyond, you know. The Oddfellows as well. Well, Order of the Oddfellows. I think uh, that's maybe a big part of the job of secret society uh, behavior is to maintain some kind of control over the narrative. <laughs> like the odd fellows mission was to like uh, teach the poor people. <laughs> you know, that was one of their state mission statements. I think probably a big part of it has to do with making sure that we, that uh, people back then did not catch a whiff of any disputing mosaic history, because that is what is most important to maintain the church's authority, mm. uh, either version Protestant or, or Catholic. But Mark, um, what I think I want to do at this point is maybe get into, I'd love a bit of a tour as fun as it is to, and I'm, I'm still down for like stories and anecdotes and speculation, no doubt. But I think I kind of want to gear, gear the next little bit for a while around analyzing the symbolism that we can evidently see that doesn't require any kind of, you know, speculative, uh, thing you know we're just going to look this is the symbols that are there you know and then we can speculate about those with what we know about symbolism in our you know in our panel here but maybe while you prepare some uh images and and i know mario probably has some good things to say about just that classic skull and crossbones but i want to kick it over to mario and then gabe uh in terms of commentary on some of the things you just said or questions or observations pertaining to skull and bones I, I'm sure you guys have been thinking a lot of thoughts. May I wrap up what I was? Uh, oh, sure. To? Sorry, buddy. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's all right. And I agree. I think we should, we should open it up. This is a visual medium and I'm not the only one here. So don't let me talk the whole time. But, uh, but just to conclude the, the sort of venture into native Americans and why they even are important to this conversation uh, when it comes to skull and bones is simply that, you know, like I said, these, institutions that we take for granted as coming from the founding of our nation, you know, they were really developed in these sort of think tanks, these elite think tanks like Yale and Harvard. And, you know, Skull and Bones comes out later uh, after this sort of suspicion is aroused by this William Morgan affair. You know, everybody's like, oh, what's going on with these Freemasons and the odd fellows you mentioned and all these other fraternal groups that had you know, come about and really uh, sort of 
gotten their hands deep in the pot of this new federal American government, um, you know, they've helped, you know, weave that narrative that we're all sort of trying to piece, you know, unpiece and, and re put back together in the right order. Um, the Society of Cincinnati is another group that might come up again in this conversation. And this group of people really carved up the rest of the country too, because a lot of these uh, men that came through Harvard and Yale, they went on to become politicians, landowners, business owners. And, you know, the, the West back then was Ohio and, and like Arkansas and Kentucky. Right. So, you know, think about that in 1832, they were still settling the Midwest and then beyond. So, you know, all of the colleges that we think of, like the University of California, Stanford, and like everything in between from the University of Chicago to, you know, I'm, I don't know all of them, but there's tons of institutions across this nation. And all of them have fingerprints of skull and bones, Yale or Harvard in some way, shape or fashion, if not being all outright founded by bonesmen, like, for example, the University of California, Berkeley, which has a tower, the Coit uh, Gilman Tower, that guy was straight up skull and bones. I mean, they're, they're honoring him in the middle of their campus. So this this story that's starting here in New Haven that I'm kind of going to show you guys, this is a call for people all over the country to go to their local university and start looking around and see if you find this symbolism, see what kind of clubs and groups are at these colleges, see what kind of people have graduated and what have they, what they've gone on to do with their lives. Because New Haven is just, you know, the start in a sense, right? We have Harvard in Boston, which I don't know the most about, but they're they're connected to Yale in a big way. So yeah, let's get into what New Haven looks like for maybe people who have never been and uh, even people who have been to New Haven. I guarantee there are going to be some things I show you that uh, you may not have noticed you know, on your, your walks or drives through New Haven. So yeah, let's get to some pictures here. I got a list of observations bubbling up over here. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Um, for first thing, since that's most fresh in the on the conversation is the word club is a symbol of fire and fire is symbolic of an ultimatum. It means you can come warm up, you can come get close, you can join us, or we can burn your fucking city down. So the club in and of itself, that's what, you know, that's what Orion is carrying. That's what he's hanging up over his head. And, uh, you know, he's got that big club in the sky. He's the big hero up there. And that is the, that's the trademark of, you know, Genghis Khan, uh, the, the tribes and what started westward expansion way back in the day was, Hey, we're going to either burn your city or you can be part of the club. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that in the mix while we're talking about, uh, symbols. Also, um, I looked up, I couldn't help myself. I might be jumping the gun here, Mark, but uh, I looked up the namesake of Yale. It's a fellow named, uh, I can't, I can hardly pronounce this name. Elihu, E-L-I-H-U. Yale. Say it one more time. Elihu Yale. Thank you. 
So I just looked him up real quick just to so I could fuck up the name real good. And it turns out there's a character in the Bible named Elihu. And he appears in the book of Job for the first time in Job 32.2. Job 3.2.2 is where Elihu uh, appears for the first time. And there's a, if you go on uh, just We Keep Idea and you look, there's a famous painting by uh, William Blake uh, that is called The Wrath of Elihu. And this character just kind of pops into the middle of a conversation at one point. There's a whole rabbit here, whole, rabbit hole going on here. But I just had to point out that 322. And one, when I see Job, I always, I just want to put this forward. There's a contradiction of, okay, so the serpent is in Genesis and is uh, said to be the devil himself. But when you get later in the stories to Job, the devil is up in heaven making deals with God. Satan is making deals with God about Job. So there's a contradiction of the chronology that the devil was cast out in Genesis, but then you get to Job and he's sitting next to God again, and they're making wheeling and dealing on who's going who's gonna to fuck with Job. And so there are certain groups of people who believe that the book of Job comes before Genesis. And that's just very interesting that that making that kind of huge switch on the chronology of the Bible is a way to uh, maybe uh, make amends. It's, a, it's an addendum so that the chronology of the devil sitting next to God and making a deal to go mess with Job makes sense that later the devil will get cast out in Genesis. So I just wanted to put all that forward uh, because some people say 322 is a reference to Genesis 322, where the first time that God says, oh, it's a good thing they didn't get to the tree of life. Uh, And that's a very interesting little side note that there were two trees. Everybody knows about the tree of knowledge, but God just happens to mention that they didn't get to the tree of life. It's a good thing they might rise up and start a rebellion. So all of those are on my mind. Just thought I'd throw that all in the mix. Mm, mm. nice yeah, good stuff funny. dude it's funny you mentioned milton blake i have a postcard right next to me that's one of his illustrations uh although he was born after yale was named and probably after elahu yale uh i mean maybe he was still alive in 1757 but either way yeah yale is an interesting character governor of the east india dutch east india company um in British British run India, which was then known as Madras. I don't know if that's still the name of the city. Probably not. But uh yeah. But yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, go ahead, Mario. And, he has some thoughts. There, there's a few different pictures of Alehu Yale, uh artistic paintings of him, and he always has his little black slave behind him, kind of scuttled off in the shadows behind him. And his slave's name is Timar or Tamir. And that's very fascinating because Tamir is a city in India. And it happens to be where uh, 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 Harris, Kamala Harris, her family hails from Tamir. Uh, Just a very interesting little link that she has a familiar tie-in to that name of that little black slave behind Elihu Yale. Interesting, man. 
Um, yeah. So what I was going to point out real quick is just how astrologically appropriate it would be to eat a heart on three, two, two being the beginning of spring, right? Um, Aries, there's a lot of sacrificial energy that corresponds with Aries. Uh, Christ was known as the lamb of God, right? And he was crucified during Aries season. Um, Aries season, uh, obviously most of it, um, or at least it begins in March, but, you know, beware the Ides of March, you know, um, there's a lot of wars and there's a lot of atrocities that have happened during March, which I think is interesting. Uh, Caesar was assassinated, um, during this time frame, right? And so, uh, that's also interesting too, because he was an emperor and the emperor card corresponds with Aries season. Um, so it's not uncommon to see rams and lambs and things like that in the emperor card. Uh, um, and Mark, what you're saying, I know you're just throwing it out there cause you heard it from a buddy or whatever, but if they were eating a heart when, uh, the sun was rising over the Eastern horizon, like that's how we determine what sign we're in. Right. And so, um, it's based off of that, the path of the ecliptic, the path of the sun. And so, um, I just think that's kind of a fascinating sort of thing that three, two, two has this correspondence with the beginning of Aries, all of this sacrificial energy, uh, Aries is ruled by Mars, right? The, uh, the planet of war and everything else. And so there's a lot to be said about all of that, but I just think that's kind of a curious sort of thing. And, uh, I'm, I'm kind of inclined to think that three, two, two is obviously multi-layered, multifaceted. Uh, I think it's very, very interesting too, that three plus two plus two is seven, which there's a whole lot to say about that, which maybe, uh, we can get into later on in the show, but that's what I got for now. Yeah, yeah. The the guy who who mentioned that to me was uh, was my friend Amos, who you know again, not a not just any like random character in New Haven. Somebody who kind of moved where he's from in Arizona to be close to this person that he was related to, his ancestor Geronimo, whose you know skull was taken from his grave. Uh, in Oklahoma and brought by Prescott Bush, George W. Bush's grandfather to uh, Yale and put in the tomb, you know? So yeah, Amos kind of kicked off this journey for me in a, in a lot of ways. I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be learning all of this if it wasn't for him, I guess. But yeah, anyways, my mouse seems to be going wacky. I don't know if you guys see that, but are you, is that how for you guys too? There's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that I need to restart my laptop and join you guys, but uh, this is live. So let's, let's just power through and hopefully it won't be too bad. But um, as you can see here, this is the center of New Haven. And unlike your average city in the United States, New Haven is sort of, uh, peculiar for its planning and for how it is uh, set up around this nine square grid at the center of New Haven. It's actually a historical landmark because of that. There's, uh, I think, only a couple, maybe a handful of other examples of this type of city planning uh, throughout the nation. And this nine square grid makes a very interesting uh, sort of pattern, especially maybe we'll get into the sort of Western mandalas and the magic squares since Mario's here. But as you can see in the top 
left corner of my slide, when you look over the, what is the eastern portion of the center square, you see an eight-sided walkway around an eight-sided fountain uh, with a flagpole. It's a sort of, I think it's a Civil War monument, uh, maybe also a World War I monument as well. And these paths bisecting the green are, uh, you know, I clearly pentagrams. I mean, from this angle, it looks really pronounced. But when you look at the, when you look at the green from above, it has a very interesting pattern. We'll get to that in just a second. But I want to point out the three churches. You can see the, the two, um, in the top left corner of the screen, those two churches, those are the two, um, the one in the middle, I believe is the oldest. And then this, the one in the North there is the the second oldest. And then in this picture to the right here, you can see the third church, which is on the Southern end of the green. And this center square is uh, cut in two by a road known as uh, temple street. And rightly so, because these, Three churches are like temples. They're oriented with their front doors to the east, as temples typically are. And uh, this is sort of like the the center of the community of New Haven as it's evolved over its 400 years of history, nearly 400 years. It was established in 1640. So, yeah, nearly 400 years now. And right up here um, where this... Uh, See, my mouse is so crazy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get you guys with the mouse, but right under where it says City of New Haven, you'll see the tallest tower in New Haven, the one I described with that pyramidal-shaped roof. And I'll have a better picture of it. You can see it straight on in a moment. But yeah, this is the green, and I've often suspected that there's something going on with those pathways, uh, you know, even before I got on with this research. And the eight-sided fountain pathway thing there in the center seems to be hinting at that because typically when you see an eight-sided building it's oriented to another structure somewhere else on the map this is a practice that uh occurred in rome and a, a researcher named court lindahl has actually done a bunch uh of videos on this he's been on several podcasts talking about this one of the famous ones was the tower of the winds at athens that was eight-sided now, um, yeah, let's move on to our next slide here. So that grass that you're looking at behind the churches, not only was there once a federal courthouse standing there, but there was also, still is to this day, over 6,000 bodies buried. It is a mass grave. This is how, um, you know, life went on back in the day. When you died, you were buried behind the church, you know, especially in colonial times when everything around you was wilderness. You know, they weren't going like two miles out north into the woods to bury their dead. They did it right behind the church where it was safest and where people could come and pay their respects. So eventually this kind of became a problem. Dogs would go and dig up bones and, you know, it was sort of uh People were worried about illnesses at the time, especially. So, yeah. Um, oh, Nathaniel Palmer. It's interesting. I've actually been to his grave in, uh, I think it's in Groton. But, but aren't uh, you also a mystic and a Palmer? 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. That was an interesting sink. Connecticut. Connecticut. Shout out. But uh, no, no, Palmer's my middle name, so I'm not related to that uh, the, that group of Palmers. But anyways, um, yeah. So so this graveyard, this is where I actually met Amos. Just behind his, I would sit on the uh, the benches back there and smoke a little weed in between classes when I was at Gateway Community College. Uh, Gabe Gateway CC. What do you think of that for? <laughs> Uh, symbolism, right? I mean, that's how this all started. I went through the CC gateway and uh, here we are now. That's interesting. You know what I was thinking? Yeah, so we got... I I was thinking about if you're in a church facing the the priest at the, you know, up on the pulpit, uh, in a subconscious way, you're also, because all of the dead people are behind the church, energetically you're actually also facing all those piles of dead people uh even though you can't see it but on some subconscious level that is actually what you're looking at yeah excellent yeah you're i was thinking about with the two five-pointed stars going on how Mm -hmm. new haven the nun the hebrew letter nun is 50 and the hay is five. So it's like five and five kind of, and there's two five pointed stars. I don't know if that has any relevance at all, but that just popped into my head. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought of, you know, new heaven when I think of new Haven, but also, I mean, it could be interpreted as new Harbor, uh, but Gabe, good point, you know, and this church on the South end of temple street actually has a crypt underneath it because people were buried underneath the church as well. And when they moved the headstones, they brought a bunch of them underneath uh, that church there. So yeah, they're they're literally, you know, worshiping or sitting there for their service uh, over a grave as well. And uh, yeah. Uh, Regarding those stars real quick. um, I just wanted to point out that it could be potentially very significant that um, it's only one point of the upper star that actually touches that octagon and then notice that the lower star, that top point is kind of cut off or covered or whatever. So there could be something going on with that symbolically. Um, Cause there are actually uh, there, there have been groups that have made use of a broken pentagram actually like dark occult groups. And so I don't know if that's what they're referencing necessarily, but um, and actually that lower star kind of looks like a universal hexagram. When you look at, uh, yeah, that, that bottom portion, right. you know what I'm talking about, Gabe? Right. Yeah. Mark, yeah. You totally. See too. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. You, unicursal. It's also, uh, I think that has also to do with, uh, uh, what they tell us the dynamics of the light during an eclipse. And also, um, anybody who's uh, dealt with like camera, camera obscuras where the light gets refracted and flipped. Yeah. Good call. That's totally crystal clear there. Mm. Now, what's interesting, you know, it's not just those two pentagrams. It seems to be a third one going on, right? As you can see here, now that I've zoomed into what's like a proper map of New Haven, this is actually a picture of the street maps. As you can see, there's a little you are here uh, box right there. So you would be standing right there looking over the green as you saw this map here. And yeah, it, it definitely has that pentagram vibe. I, I've 
had the Crowley Thoth deck for a while. So when I first saw this, I immediately thought of the Unicursal Hexagram because that's what's on Crowley's deck. You know, there's uh, I think there's even one card that's like a one off. You don't even really use it. And it just has a Unicursal Hexagram on it. So, yeah, I've always been curious about that. And that road path that goes uh, through both sides of the green here, it goes directly uh, from Orange Street here in between that really tall building, the uh, Connecticut Financial Center and the courthouse, which is, you know, uh, I believe it's it's not in use anymore, essentially like a federal courthouse um, for the state of Connecticut. Now, along this path is some really interesting art. It's like this very tall metallic sculpture painted red and it almost looks like a heart like the aortas of a heart the way they're like multiple tubes moving around i'll show you guys an image of it in a moment but uh but yeah this pathway goes straight up past the center church and into what is called the phelps gateway and that's kind of like the entrance into yale and this is sort of the historical place where a lot of the yale uh, interactions between what they call in any university town, town and gown. You know, if you're in college, you're gown. And if you live in town, you're town. So the relationship between town and gown has always been important wherever there's a college. And it's particularly unique with Yale, uh, not only because of the secret societies, but also because of the extreme wealth that goes into a, a school like Yale, the elite families that have continuously sent their children to Yale uh, through over the, the many generations. So there is a sort of interesting, you know, culture that's gone on and been birthed up around this wall that used to be on the screen here. It was kind of like a, a short three foot, two foot high wall that people would lean against and, you know, socialize with the young ladies or young men in town. And this is kind of, Interesting considering the graveyard being right here and all the magic associated with a place like that. And also nowadays, you know, that uh, town and gown dynamic has shifted. I think most of the interaction goes on in the local bar scenes, if anything. But uh, but yeah, this connecting Yale to the banks over this graveyard not only to the banks, but, you know, basically the city government city hall is right here and the federal building where a lot of people come and get their uh, citizenship. This is where you come in as citizen. So yeah, very, very interesting connections here. And it's all even more interesting when you look and see that all of these Ivy league schools are lined up on a ley line what Peter Shampoo calls the city ley line. And yeah, we've got the Columbia College, Rutgers, Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, Yale, and Harvard all along the same line, you know, with the exception of Cornell, Dartmouth, and, you know, Brown, which Brown is sort of close enough. But uh, it's also interesting to note that Brown was started in part by the seventh president of Yale a man named Ezra Stiles, who's actually painted with a tetragrammaton over his shoulder. He was studying the Kabbalah and uh, definitely interested in the occult. So, yeah, we, we've got 
something going on here. And as I said earlier, they were trying to create a sort of new utopian ideal and build on this blank template here in America. And you might be able to see that symbolism with this sort of Temple of Solomon and how the Temple of Solomon has this three by three makeup and New Haven has that same, you know, churches or the doorway here. Solomon's temple is oriented towards the east. I mean, you know, to me, this seems like uh, a fulfillment of some sort of prophecy. I think it's definitely worth the biblical uh, lens, <laughs> especially after you explain kind of, you know, what, how these colleges got started in the first place. I want to point out, I just got kind of hung up on when a few slides back, you could see like this hexagon logo with NHV in it. I'm like, okay, there, this is the town acronym NHV. That's got to mean something. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a clue there. So when you put NHV into Hebrew letters, you get non hey vav. But then whenever you look up the meaning of non hey vav as a word, you get this biblical word that gets transliterated literated into English, usually as nebo, because B and V interchange. And they're used indiscriminately when translating from Hebrew. So nebo is like a, a place name and the name of a deity to the Canaanites. But specifically nebo, other than being kind of like an idol that the Old Testament you know, talks down to, it's the place where Moses was supposedly buried or his remains were kept so you know we have this mythology of the skull <laughs> with the, the whose skull is it is you know john the baptist is a messiah figure moses's name literally is the hebrew word for messiah i find that very interesting you know maybe there is some kind of more ancient uh significance to this you know especially when you look at the people that talk about the old testament being referring to stuff happening in North America <laughs> is this the biblical town of Nebo uh this New Haven who knows i mean that might be a stretch but these are the type of strings that if you pull on them they take you places usually absolutely yeah good point i'm glad you uh punched that in i would not have thought to do that and uh i think there's some old testament magic going on but it also seems to be you know sort of fulfillment of what's written in revelations you know this end times and that's a part of uh the culture of calvinism this sort of group of christians that settled new haven they were calvinists and they believe in this idea that everybody is kind of damned uh by birth to sin except for this uh you know chosen few and how do you know you're chosen well if if you're wealthy well that's a sign that god favors you so you're probably chosen so what we're talking about here is a sort of priest class of elites you know who who consider themselves ordained by god to do whatever despicable deeds necessary in order to bring about uh, the end of the world and god's final judgment which is you know what they've been pining for for generations centuries and 
when you trace it all the way up to what Skull and Bones has done relatively recently, World War II and the invention of the atom bomb. I mean, these are all things that can be directly connected to Skull and Bones. And we could see how those two events right there have changed the world among many others that are also inevitably connected to Skull and Bones. Namely, the automobile itself. I mean, the distillation of oil was first done by Professor Benjamin Silliman Jr., who essentially was, you know, one of the, you know, uh, men who kind of created Skull and Bones without being a part of it. He was never a part of it because he was a professor at the time that, that Skull and Bones was around or founded, but, uh, but he was a facilitator and he was a professor at the, Sheffield Scientific School, which essentially was controlled by Skull and Bones and then used to take over the rest of Yale to this day. I mean, they've had kind of control over the faculty and the management for periods of time. And yeah, I would argue that still to this day, although there's less and less information about Skull and Bones, the more recently you look, I mean, there was a lot of interest on this group when Bush was president because of the whole Bush versus Kerry thing. But, no tings me, bro. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to this stuff, I mean, it, it's, it's very, it's very, very deep. You know, I, I'm, you mentioned St. John and I haven't quite gotten to that part yet. I stopped screen sharing so I could look for that piece of art, but I'm going to skip past that for now and go back to sharing my screen because you know, I mentioned that it's a graveyard uh, on the green and uh, it's sort of like a hidden graveyard, right? Because if nobody told you, you, you wouldn't notice unless you maybe looked and read the plaques on the back of the church. So when they decided to basically build a new cemetery, they had to move a lot of these bodies from the old burying, the burying ground. So you have this old map here of uh, Yale University. Uh, it's kind of just showing you the Yale buildings, cropping out all the others. And what I consider this road here is sort of like a corpse road, because not only do you have the three churches right here on the green facing as, as Gabe pointed out with their, you know, as you're sitting in the church, you're actually facing the West, even though the, uh, the whole church itself is oriented to the East. So they're facing this road that skull and bones tomb is located on. The Harkness tower is located on the Harkness tower. We can get into all the interesting things about that. But this is essentially a corpse road uh, where they, you know, the souls navigate from the churches to the cemetery and back and forth after they've been buried. Uh, at the end of this corpse road is the first proper cemetery in America. This is the first cemetery of its kind ever to be built in the United States with a fence around it and pathways and individual plots. Prior to this time, you know, the the construction of this cemetery, they were just doing this sort of mass burial behind the church, you know, or maybe in a local area in town with just, you know, in sort of like a, a pile, you know, uh, of, of headstones. Right. 
not really with much order. But no, this was a unique invention. This would be like a, a garden of the dead, as they called it at the time, where people would be encouraged to come and walk around uh, on a pleasant afternoon and take a look at all the interesting artwork and sculpture that existed as headstones, which, as you can see with these sort of cherubic women, these griffin women, uh, Sphinx women? I don't know what to call these. Mario, maybe you can tell me they're real. Yeah, uh, those are Sphinx. Yeah, they're Sphinx. They're beautiful, like, by the way. Those are gorgeous, yeah. right? And so I always look at the Sphinx as being a uh, combination of Virgo and, and Leo. And so mm. my understanding was that some people think back in ancient Egypt that the beginning of the astrological year for them was Virgo. Then they go through the whole year and then they end at Leo. So you're actually seeing kind of in a way an encapsulation of the whole entire year beginning and end in one statue. Oh mm. man, that's a great weave, Mario. Which 322 is also fits that description just in a different calendar. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that would be the Coptic New Year. If it's the in Virgo, uh, in Coptic, uh, to be uh, culturally accurate, is the that's the slave Christians. So to to be venerating the Coptic New Year, you know, nine eleven is the Coptic New Year, mm. and the Coptics were considered the slave class for a very long time through history. Uh, that's an interesting weave. Great, great call. Are there two of them, Mark? Are there two sphinxes? Yeah, as far as I know, this is two different ones. It could be one picture of the same one. Yeah. But I've never actually, I've walked through this cemetery. They're often in pairs. Yeah, right. I, I've walked through this cemetery a bunch and I've never found this. So, I mean, maybe it could have been removed, over, but there, the picture exists. So it was there at some point in time, but uh, I've never walked over to this part of the cemetery. I just, maybe I haven't you know, been pulled to that particular area. It's a big cemetery. I haven't seen the whole thing, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. This grave uh, gateway, this, you know, gateway to the cemetery here has the iconic, uh, you know, raw sun disc with the two snakes and the wings, you know, this biblical verse here, the dead shall be raised. Uh, I believe I don't know two pillars, from. clearly two pillars. And yeah, this whole design is based on some uh, some sketches that came out sometime earlier from Napoleon's conquest of Egypt. You know, he went down there and took things over. He sent his scientists and archaeologists and professors out to gather as much information as he could. And then they sent all this uh, all these drawings out, you know, to the various universities. But they. Henry Austin, the, the architect, designed this after uh, a couple of different temples. He used different elements from each one. But primarily, these columns that you notice, the pillars, uh, are modeled after the Temple of Ashmoon or Hermopolis Magna. And this, you know, syncs up even more when you come to find out that the road that goes along the western side of the cemetery is is called ashman street and ashman street is named after a, a gentleman named jedediah ashman who helped found the colony of liberia which at the time was a, a venture to try to send you know the recently freed slaves back to africa rather than 
abolish, you know, abolishing slavery, they thought, well, let's just send them back. And, you know, considering that they were third and fourth generation at that point, never even stepped in Africa, that probably would have been a, a pretty cruel thing to do. Luckily, that, that didn't really happen. I, I think they only sent, you know, five or six ships over unsuccessfully, some of them, unfortunately. But yeah, this guy who never lived in New Haven, you know, lived a lot of his life in Africa and then died in Boston. He gets shipped over post-mortem to New Haven and buried right at the front of this cemetery with his name prominently featured on a sarcophagi uh, where he's buried to this day. So yeah, I've always wondered ever since learning this, like maybe there's something to that syncretism there with Hermopolis and New Haven. And Hermopolis was where they worship Hermes, a.k.a. Thoth. And uh, it was also the city where they worship the sacred eight deities, which is interesting considering Yale has the ancient eight consortium, which is the ancient eight secret societies, skull and bones, scroll and key, wolf's head. Um, and then there's five others, which I can name, but uh, I'm not going to be able to remember them all off the top of my head rapidly. <laughs> uh, give me a second. Book and Snake, Berzelius, uh, Mace and Chain, Elihu, and uh, I think I'm leaving one other out. Oh, St. Elmo is the other one. So yeah, there's the eight. And it's interesting, you know, these eight deities were worshipped in Hermopolis and now they have this gate. Also on Ashman Street is this like super power plant that basically powers all of Yale and whatever's running that power plant. I mean, it's, I mean, high tech, you know, Yale can afford probably the most cutting edge in power plant technology. Um, so it's interesting what's going on. And across the street is the Book and Snake Tomb, which kind of looks like the Nike temple at Greece. It's said to have been modeled after the Ashruskian uh, temple. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But so the Book and Snake Tomb is packed with symbolism. I mean, here's what the gateway out front looks like. It's got these iron caduceuses all around it. And pillars have the ephemian and palmet motif which is significant for the mystery schools of course uh, book and snake tomb is also the first of the secret societies to become co-ed and allow uh, women into the fraternity so yeah this Man. is all the symbolism of graveyards and especially that arch that has the dead shall rise on it mm. I couldn't find the receipt for this, but I mean, not that it matters. I I just know that I came across somewhere, somebody I was reading from the 1820s or something talking about the skull and crossbones being a symbol of the prima materia. And I just put that in my pocket and I was like, that seems important. And I've been crunching on it. And now look, you know, looking at all this, I do see how, the skull and crossbones could represent the prima materia in the sense that, you know, once you go through the destruction phase, the regeneration phase has to follow. Mm. And it's almost like there's some element of the secret societies that embrace the filth or the death or the corruption or the evil as some kind of weird 
way to tip the scales towards regeneration and rejuvenation somewhere else. You know, I wonder if that is ever thought about with all it this. is. It is, you know, as a matter of fact, the founders of Skull and Bones, Alfonso Taft and William Huntington Russell, they spent their summer prior to founding Skull and Bones in Germany, uh, you know, getting buddy buddy with George Heigl, the professor at the University of Berlin. And for anyone familiar with his philosophy, it's like a Hegelian philosophy. Uh, the Hegelian dialect might be familiar for people. It's like the problem. Uh, reaction solution methodology, uh, but also Hegelianism is exactly what you described, which is like all death brings life. And he even had a more, I guess what we would all three, four of us would probably disagree with, which is like, they kind of thought of the whole world as dead because of the fact that death, you know, and things dying gave way for new life that they, they kind of gave this like gave way to this sort of uh, scientific materialism that's kind of prevalent today, especially amongst, you know, people who identify as atheists or agnostic, right? So, you know, when it comes to creating or shaping the new world, which is an alchemical thing to do, you know, they took this uh, idea of the world being dead and mainstreamed it. So yeah, absolutely. The skull is connected to that. And, and, you know, uh, Gabe brought up, the club of Orion. Well, you know, these, you know, deaths had skull and bones cults. I mean, in a sense are Osirian, you know, they're an Osirian group that, you know, goes through a process of death and rebirth. They all, you know, lie in a coffin, confess their worst sins, and then become a new man through the knighthood of the order of skull and bones. And they forever, you know, change themselves i mean if they if as long as they're loyal to this group i think it's it has been you know the case where some sort of fall from the ranks and maybe slip some info to people like uh some of the authors that have written about skull and bones but mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's definitely uh osirian and, and death related right, right. so uh so hegel I always say he basically took church and state and fused it together in an un, inconceivable Gordian's knot. And from ever since Hegel, the idea of religion, the trinity of the religion, uh, he just alchemically fused state and religion for uh, forever. Uh, and so it's very interesting. We're talking about alchemy, and it and it leads to Hegel and his influence. Um, and I, I always point out that the skull and bones is a T-S-A-B. You reverse that and you get bast. And then this temple you just brought forward was, uh, the acronym is bast. Let's see, uh, book and snake tomb. Well, don't forget the word, don't forget the word order because that would make it boast. And you're right about that. People have pointed that out that uh skull and bones and book and snake are just like flipped back and forth and yeah that's they're out of all the secret societies those are the only two that clearly have some sort of connection with one another um like wolf's head is kind of its own thing scrolling key is its own thing but skull and bones and book and snake are definitely connected through membership and associations and 
I mean, that's yeah. the Sheffield Scientific School looking snake. I mean, those are the people that basically created the modern industrial world with the invention of, you know, not only distilling of oil, but also uh, they discovered how to vulcanize rubber. And this is all, you know, kind of part and parcel to how we get automobiles in the world that we're living in now, right? Totally, nice. totally. And it's arguable uh, that the wolf's head is very, very German and very Nazi. Um, and so, Mark, actually, I wanted to ask, I listened to your interview with Chris uh, Mulligan, Milligan uh, from Trine Day. It was awesome. Milligan, great, uh, great Mill- show. Milligan. OK, gotcha. Um, do you have any information and we can get into this later, but do you have any information regarding um, this Nazi room and what they had in there or are there photos or anything like that? I find that to be very, very interesting for a few reasons. Yeah, people can go and check out like Chris's book, which has a picture of uh, some German stuff, not any of the Nazi memorabilia. That was mm. that was seen by somebody who went into Skull and Bones through like, I guess their, their classmate or someone they were friends with was a member and they weren't a member and they were in the tomb for some reason and saw Nazi memorabilia and whatnot. And that came out during the first Bush's presidency, George H.W. Bush. That was a headline in the news that he was a part of some fraternity that had Nazi memorabilia on it. But the wolf's head, you know, you, you pointed out the German thing with that. And I don't doubt that, but the wolf's heads emblem is actually a wolf's head on top of an upside down onk, which is very interesting. Oh. I don't know if you guys have seen any symbols that parallel that, but the, the name wolf's head itself kind of denotes within Freemasonry that someone is the son of a Freemason if they're a wolf's head. So ah. I think. I think out of all the secret societies, from what I've seen, Wolf's Head is the most like connected to uh, Freemasonry. And they're the one out of all of the like tombs on campus. Their original tomb was closest to the actual New Haven Freemason Lodge, Hiram Lodge Number 1, which was mm. the first lodge in Connecticut ever. So, wow. Uh, and one of the first Freemasonry lodges in the, in the new world, it's probably like top 10, top 15 oldest Freemason lodges where like a bunch of the founding fathers got their, you know, degrees in Freemasonry from uh, Nathan Hale, even though his life was very short to Benedict Arnold was a member of, of that Freemason lodge, I think for a time and some other like, uh, you know, you guys, aren't from new England. So you probably wouldn't recognize these names, but like John Worcester, John Trumbull, there's a bunch of other people that were kind of members of the revolutionary wars like that. Not members, but soldiers in the revolutionary war. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Thanks, man. So, um, a couple ideas, uh, a while back on the one-on-one podcast, we did a breakdown on werewolves. And I had a late onset epiphany. It was the day after the show that I learned that Adolf translates in Old Norse. It actually translates to the head wolf. Ulf means Ulf means wolf, and Ed is like the head or the noble wolf. And so, you know, these old, uh, you know, the berserkers would wear a bear skin and a bear's skull as their as their head headdress. And then they were very close. They would work side by side with the wolf clan 
And the Wolf Clan did the same thing. They'd have the wolf skull on their helmet, and then they'd have their skin as like body armor. And then when you mentioned Upside Down Onk, I just had to bust this out. Uh, this is the most prolific Upside Down Onk I know of. It's the Hangman card on the Thoth Crowley deck. And I just did a, a fun decode on this particular card is uh, very powerfully correspondent with Harry Houdini. And if you look close, you can see H-A-R-R-Y is a hyper sigil in the shape of this card. You see the H, the arms make an A, the legs make a double R, and then the whole thing is a Y upside down. Harry Houdini is uh, deeply uh, intrinsic to this card. And if you come over to the Slick Dissident Shared Learning Experience, you'll get a full breakdown on that. Okay, so you just showed the hangman. That's so perfect. Because <laughs> I'm over here thinking about, you know, for some reason my mind is on what's the Hebrew, like what can we learn about this stuff from the ancient Hebrew side of the stuff, right? So uh, skull, like skull and bones, Apart from the skull as a symbol representing wisdom, you know, it does do that. You have Odin with the skull of Mimir. You have, again, like that Templar mythos of them with the skull of John the Baptist. In fact, many words in the ancient languages mean both head, which is your skull, and wisdom. That's uh, been established a lot (laughs) in previous episodes, but skull in Hebrew is... It's one of those words where they double something. So it has this uh, gimel. Uh, it's like G. Let's see. It's like gimel. Uh, hey. No, I'm sorry. Gimel. Vav. Lamed. So it's like G-U-L or G-O-L. Like goal. 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 <laughs> it has the repeat of that. So that's skull. But if you just do it once. Goal once with the Hebrew letters. It's referring to a, an infant or a baby, or giving birth, the act of giving birth, or a baby in the womb, still in the womb. And in the birth experience, what comes out first? The baby's skull comes out first. They call it crowning. So, you know, to weave this back around to like the beginning of the talk with the potential of rituals consuming human body parts, is there something about babies or maybe placentophagy, especially that, you know, if we're talking, if this is a baby doubled goal, goal Mm -hmm. or a second birth doubled. Well, what is born second, Gabriel? What is born second? The second coming man straight up. Yep. And flush that out for people in the back. I want you to take that around with it a little bit, you know, pretend like somebody's never heard of the second coming real quick, right? And why <laughs> yeah, that yeah. would pertain to wisdom. So uh, there is a lot of uh, evidence far and wide um, that the consumption of the placenta will instill, I call it the, uh, the convey the full estate, the full inheritance. The placenta is the family heirloom. And in fact, it is proven scientifically that placentophagy uh, informs the child's immune system on a level that is unappreciated. And in fact, by not doing it, we are making ourselves weaker. We are making ourselves maybe more animalistic. 
because we are not getting the benefit of all the trials and tribulations, all the work, all the job that our parents did before us going through all of their diseases. And now we are, when we're exposed to whatever uh, stressors in life, uh, we don't have the full information because the full uh, conveyance of our family tree, this is the tree of life. So when your mama signs off on that piece of paper, that's the tree of knowledge. Half a a brain. You don't have a full skull. You only have one goal. That's what's up. So the, the birth certificate is the tree of knowledge. It's made out of wood. It's a Drew Wood magic. You got a pencil, you got a piece of paper. This is all the tree of knowledge. You think you know right from wrong. But the tree of life is the real Monty. And that's what was not instilled in Adam and Eve. And that tree of life is the placenta that gets left at the uh, at the hospital. It gets turned into makeup. It gets turned into vaccines. It gets turned into weapons and drugs for people in high places. Uh, so that's kind of the... Uh, the gist of it. But I also, I want to say this because we, again, going back to the beginning of the show and eating something still living, I think it's really fascinating that you put it that way, Mark, that it's a still beating heart. The placenta is still beating. It's still moving for a very long time. Uh, And that makes it considered a still birth, right? Um, Now, This is really fascinating because one of the fundamental uh, basic uh, laws of Noahide, I believe it's Noahide, is not to eat a body part of an animal that is still alive. That's that's a high transgression because it's one of the first things you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to eat something of an animal that is still living. And so the placenta is of an animal that is still living. It's the child goes running around and no matter what, at any point of that child's life, if you eat it, you're eating a body part of an animal that is still alive. And that is the foundation of Noahide law is you're not supposed to do that. And so it makes it the highest form of transgression. Uh, But if the mama eats it, I think it's the highest form of divine communion. And she can read, and then she instills the information through the breast milk to the baby. So that's the that's the long and short of it. Mm, well, yeah, I, it's all new to me. It's very fascinating, kind of a, a little disturbing. But when you consider the uh, the fact that Harvard and Yale are both, you know, I think it was we need to wait a second because you're a little choppy and I want you to back up to what you're saying uh, so that we get that clear. <laughs> you froze about when you started to say Harvard and yeah. Yale. Okay, I think you're back. Harvard and Yale are known for their... Am I back now? Good. Harvard and Yale are known for their uh, medical schools now. And yeah, I wonder, you know, it's, it's like... of Yale's campus is a medical school. So yeah, who knows how this information has been integrated, but you you mentioned uh, the head and the crown and the skull. And, you know, as we're, we're talking about the head, you know, we need to think about the crown. So if you allow me to share my screen, I want to show you guys Yale's tallest building, uh, the Harkness tower, which is, Exactly 66 meters 
tall, uh, 216 feet. And it was designed and built, uh, finished exactly 90 years after Skull and Bones was uh, finished. Now, this building is, I mean, it's really something else. It was basically funded by Standard Oil Money. Anna M. Harkness, an American philanthropist who got all of her money from her husband, who was a uh, Stephen Vanderberg Harkness, an investor with John Rockefeller, and became the second largest shareholder in Standard Oil. And when he passed away, she got a lot of his money. And then when she was on her, you know, last leg, she donated a lot to Yale in her son's name, uh, Charles William Harkness, who had his name given to this tower, Harkness Tower. And the Harkness Tower depicts all sorts of different people to bring that eight back up again. It depicts Yale's eight worthies at the lowest level of ornamentation. Um, and it, I should point out this tower is very unique. It's the first of its kind in the new world. It's the first English perpendicular crown tower uh, ever built in the modern era. And it's modeled after the uh, tower of St. Botolph in Boston, Lincolnshire, which is interesting because, you know, Boston, that's where this country, I mean, the first major city in America that was primarily Americans was Boston, you know, and, and it's definitely, you know, Yale and Harvard are kind of one in the same through a lot of this like interpretation. And um, when it comes to this crown tower, it has a base, again, an octagonal base, 284 steps up to the roof. And in the, the upper level, there's a bell, a uh, carillion, which is a, a type of instrument that I think has over like 50 something bells in it. And they play this, uh, you know, periodically throughout the day. But Elihu Yale, Jonathan Edwards, Nathan Hale, America's first spy, uh, Noah Webster, the creator of the American Dictionary, the first American Dictionary, uh, James Fenimore Cooper, who was also a Yale graduate, uh, John C. Calhoun, Samuel F.B. Morse, the inventor of Morse code and many other things, and Eli Whitney are all depicted on this tower in sculpture, along with uh, Phidias, Homer, Aristotle, and Euclid. And then above that, they have some sort of allegorical figures for different uh, types of, uh, well, I guess you could consider them like, you know, what the school is, you know, creating people who go into medicine, business, law, the church. And then there's also uh, symbols of courage, war, generosity, justice, life and progress and death and freedom. And then there are uh, gargoyles, which depict the Yale students at war in study. And, uh, and then they have masks of Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Shakespeare. So, I mean, this tower is just jam-packed and loaded with symbolism. And it was sculpted primarily by a man named Lee Laurie, who went on to sculpt tons of other uh, amazing pieces of American artwork uh, across, across the world, or across America at least. Uh, some of the tallest buildings out there in the Midwest were 
finished by this guy, Lee Laurie, who I think he created uh, the tallest sculpture, something like that in it's, it's the tallest state house, you know, government official house and it's in Nebraska. And on top of it is a statue of a guy sowing seeds. Okay. It's called the sower. So he got around, he was a prolific guy and he started with this amazing Harkness tower, which I can show you some more photos. Here's the, the I have a question for everybody. You we'll start with Mark, but maybe anyone else could take a stab at it too. Uh, Mark, have you heard of the nine worthies? No. So you're talking about they're calling these eight groups of uh, societies the eight worthies, right? No, no, no. So the the ancient eight are the secret societies. The ancient and then eight. on okay. the tower, on this tower, are depicted Yale's eight worthies, and those are men that either graduated from Yale or worked with Yale, and they're depicted on this the tower at the base. Do, you, do they potentially each represent one of those eight ancient eight? I don't well tell me about them the ancient the oh you're oh the ancient eight secret societies uh n- no I I mean possibly I'm not going to rule that out but I not that I've found I mean I don't think that uh no I don't think that they were they were connecting or correlating that at all um okay i i just thought there might be a correlation there <laughs> the nine worthies is a concept from like chivalric authorship back in Europe and the idea was that there were three like pinnacle individuals representing the traditions of paganism Judaism and Christianity like uh, King Arthur is one of the nine worthies there's nine most worthy most chivalrous knightly like King David's one of them so you know you were talking about I think you maybe alluded to the eight, the ancient eight as the eight worthies, or I just mixed that up. So I was wondering like, well, who's the ninth? Is there a secret ninth one? <laughs> and what I wondered what everyone else might think about who the yeah, secret no, ninth they, one might be. Yeah. The eight just seems to be a theme, you know, especially when you consider it, you know, the whole Egyptian connection with the eight and how the gateway to the cemetery is modeled after the one where they worship the, you know, do eight divine beings. So uh, another thing with the Harkness Tower, though, you know, to, to maybe move into a different pantheon of gods uh, and the, the nine square itself, actually. But the Harkness Tower is a clock tower, right? And anytime you see a clock tower, that's Saturn, right? I mean, t- the, the father of time. But also it's important to note that the Harkness Tower is like right I mean, not even two, three hundred feet from the tomb, Skull and Bones' tomb. Okay. The tomb was actually one of the first kind of buildings on that little block there uh, next to the, the chapel, which is across the street. But anyways, uh, this practice amongst Skull and Bones men that also connects to Saturn is the gifting of a grandfather clock upon graduation. Uh, another thing is, is when a Bonesman is buried, his fellow classmates, his bonesmen brothers come along and give uh, a sickle and a shaft of wheat to place on his grave as his coffin's buried. So, yeah, we have this, you know, the tallest building at Yale, the first crown tower of its kind in the new world. And uh, and it's a sort of Saturn thing. And the nine square grid itself is a magical square. When you put the 
numbers one through nine in that magical square arrangement in a three by three grid, you get the numeral 15 across any angle, no matter how you add the numbers up, whether you go diagonally, vertically, horizontally, you get the number 15. Of course, one plus five equals six, the sixth planet from the sun, Saturn. And uh, that's why I think whatever's going on with that path work on the green, it may be a sigil. You know, these lines stretch outside of the boundaries of the center square and connect to other parts of the nine square, maybe making some sort of code, right? You have different numeral values for each square and then a line tracing each of the numeral values. If you know where the line starts and where the line ends, maybe you can trace that pattern through the pathways and figure out what exactly number they're trying to reference with those uh, pentagrams there. That that's always been kind of my suspicion. I, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, when, when you look at which square they call ninth square, it's the square that would be in the one through nine numerical value, not, you know, the magical square. If it was a magical square, it would be the, the square above the nine where the six would be, would be the nine which is interesting because there's a cafe in the sixth square that claims to be in the ninth square. So there you go. And I used to work at that cafe. So, (laughs) so there is a little bit of a thread there and I haven't been able to parse it out, but who better to bring that up with than you three? Cause I feel like you're all over this type of stuff. Well, back to the skull thing, the Gimel or like the, the G O L Gimel, uh, Vav Lamed. I believe is how it was. Anyway, if you take the middle vowel out and just have GL in Hebrew, Gimel Vlamed, one of the meanings of that is tower. <laughs> and another oh, like nice. older meaning of that is like the arch of the back when the back is arched. So arc, the word arc has to do with rulership and wisdom and head as well in other languages. So there's a lot of interesting things there. And Mario, I kind of wondered what you made of the sickle and shaft of wheat, but I'm sure you have a lot of observations cooking up. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the sickle shaft of wheat. Yeah. Classic Saturnian stuff um, regarding harvest. Saturn eats its children oftentimes is holding either a sickle or a scythe. And then the wheat definitely corresponds with Virgo. Um, I've gone on and on about the weeping virgin uh, illustrations from Freemasonry generally has a uh, a young maiden uh, before a broken pillar. And right behind her is Kronos, Father Time, uh, separating her hair. And uh, there's a lot to get into with all of that. But um, you'll actually see some of those um some of those uh, illustrations like within a uh, within a really old graveyard uh, where there's a lot of Freemasons and stuff. You'll see broken pillars and you'll see, you know, stuff along these lines. But the thing I want to talk about real quick is the idea that uh, the tower has a funerary purpose. So the fact that it's close to the tomb, I think, is really interesting. Um, personally, when I see a tower or I see an obelisk or I see a standing stone, I, I think you're pretty much looking at the same symbolism. And so it's not uncommon to put an obelisk on top of a gravesite or to have a standing stone on top of a gravesite. And what you're implying is that you're giving the deceased a bridge to the afterlife. And so you're creating a bridge from heaven or far, sorry, from earth to the heavens. And so you're giving them kind of like a push to go towards, um, you know, the heavens, the cosmos, you know, so you're kind of granting them or giving them a pathway to the other side. And so, uh, Mark, I know you're talking about death magic, you know, and how this 
uh, clearly is a part of the skull and bones tradition. You know, I'm kind of under the opinion that there's a lot of occult groups that are actually encoding within their artwork and teaching each other or passing down the tradition of death, how to die, um, you know, and so it's like, how do we transition properly? What are the steps? What happens after death? Things like that. So this is the ultimate trip. Um, I was going to say earlier related to this is the two Sphinx. It's not uncommon to see two Sphinx in front of the uh, chariot in the charioteer card in the chariot card. And it's said that the uh, path of the charioteer is the path of death. And so um, I just think that uh, there are groups like having cancer's the top of the dome and you're going out that way. Yeah. Cause yeah, cancer yeah. rules the chariot. Totally. Totally. Yep. Exactly. For sure. And then it's not uncommon to have the charioteer with a star on top of its head, which I equate this to the North star, you know, and I think that um, it's really interesting to consider the possibility that our souls go to the North they exit the cusp of the magnetosphere around earth and they go to the Northern sky, um, which relates to Hermes, the psychopomp, uh, um, the guide of souls. And you mentioned Hermopolis earlier with the pillars. Hermes definitely has a correspondence with pillars, with trees, things of that sort, because it's believed that this is how he actually travels from realm to realm. So when you see these phallic symbols, whether it's a tower, standing stone, tree, etc. I think we're largely talking about the same symbolism, which is, um, you know, conveyed in like the Kundalini uh, serpentine symbolism of the twin snakes going up the spine or the caduceus. Right. Exactly. Um, with the uh, the serpents going up the wand that Hermes Mercury carries. But yeah, here's yeah this right. is a stone or a, a statue you call a Herm or a Herma. So when we're talking obelisk, or tower symbolism. We're also in the ancient world talking about Hermes for all the reasons Mario just said. And because biologically the bridge to the next world is the phallus in the sense that your sperma travel through the herma to get into her ma. That's it, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got it. For sure. But I love what you just said about the the tradition of knowing how to die. I feel like that is like the secret of secrets because it's also the hardest information to get or the least. Maybe it's not that hard to get the information, but it's like, I don't have the information. It's pretty well hidden. And it's not you know readily available or apparent to those of us who are in the waking consciousness of uh, the flow of life, perhaps. That's right. So one last thing I'll say about this, too, is um, when I see the skull and crossbones, there's a very there's a hermetic as above, so below kind of thing that I pick up, given the fact that our skull is our head and then the bones are literally our femurs, which are part of our legs, which are our thigh bones, which there's a lot to be said regarding the thigh bone and uh, its connection to the northern sky and everything else. Uh, it was believed that there is the thigh bowl, as an example, in the northern sky, which is Ursa Major, basically. So I see an as above, so below with the skull being rounded to potentially being a reference to the firmament, the dome within which we live, the vault of heaven, and then literally the cross bones. When you say cross or think of the cross, you know, I think of the number four. Um, and so there's a lot to be said regarding Earth and its relationship to the number four being related to like foundations and stability and um you know things like that so just something to kind of consider this as, as above so below kind of thing with the skull and crossbones mm. Mm. 
I love that. Yeah. I, you know, there's so much lore around roads, corpse roads, crossroads. And yeah, that didn't really occur to me or cross my mind until now that the crossbones <laughs> are like the crossroads. I really love that. Uh, exactly. you know, yeah, that's where you'd have a hermstone. A herm sculpture would be at the exactly. crossroads. Right on. Well, and, and Hermes was known as the lord of the crossroads as well. You mentioned Hermes chance and that, that image you showed. Um, if I may, I'm going to share some photographs rather than slides now uh, from my the trip I mentioned, I live pretty close to this. It's not really a trip, but I gave a tour of, uh, of Yale skull and bones and the whole secret society matrix there. And I've been doing this for a while. I've been going there and taking pictures. So, but I never saw this, uh, this before this flagpole here. It's so interesting. It's got this like pan figure right on the, the front there. And uh, yeah, I mean, in a sense, this is kind of like a Hermes in a way or the green God. And yeah, this whole, this whole. Yeah, that's the guy. It's the fecundating principle. (laughs) Fecundity. Like the way, okay, so Jesus is on a cross, right? All these characters, esoterically, although the symbolism kind of overtly shows it, represent the erotic force, Eros. You have like that. Sex and death, those are the two drives, you know, of uh, our psychology and uh, in a way kind of governed by this same mediatorial principle, uh, Mercury, Hermes, Jesus, Pan, etc. Now, this this. uh, What's really interesting about this is that uh, on the day I gave a tour, uh, 322. Not too recently, sometime before that, somebody had graffitied the sign on the green that gives you a kind of look of what the pathwork looks like from above. And they graffitied this like really weird kind of like overlapping triangular pentagram that you see at the center here. And I just thought that was really curious. And then over here on this... uh on this electrical box that was the phrase spiders to the web sires to the dog with that same symbol there. And again, this is all on the green. Whoa! And you know, I mean, spiders to the web, this is the place to talk about that. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, wow. sires to the dog, that's a pretty kind of screwed up phrase. I don't know who graffitied this or what they were thinking about, but it is interesting that they included that like, double triangle pentagram th- symbol and you could interpret the pathwork as sort of like two triangles and a gram in a certain extent or or two pentagrams in a triangle uh you could definitely interpret the lines to be that so yeah and i don't know again how recently that was put there but it was funny that we saw it for the first time on 322 of all days um wow and i got a picture wow. of the, the cemetery with on Grove Street, um, just the similarity the between the word grove and grave, and that the uh, yeah. you know the the wisdom traditions and the mystery schools would meet in groves or gardens. You know, Mario well, got into that in his sacred tree symbolism a little bit. That the concentric rings of gardens is a, an important aspect of the occult tradition, and so 
Grove and yeah. Grave right there. Like somebody knew their their philology well, when they put that there. You point that out because the 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 nine square grid is made up by eight streets. So those are the eight original streets, and Grove Street was one of those eight original streets. And I've been thinking about those eight original streets because there's significant words like chapel, church, crown, grove, York, George, college, state. So it might be one that I'm leaving out, but either way, uh, those are the most of them. And, and I wonder, you know, symbolically what those eight words mean and how they connect to all the lore around here. Grove is definitely one that is kind of obvious. And yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because it definitely has connections. Now, just on the left-hand side here, you can see the power plant that I was talking about. And there's the two towers that they look like really close to each other, but that's just the angle that this picture is being taken from. Now, right across the street, what I'm standing, what's behind me is the book and snake tomb. But to my left, when I was taking this picture is the Yale Law School where the Clintons got their education and many bonesmen have gone to school and got their postgraduate degrees there and whatnot. So uh, here's the entrance to the law school. They have one entrance for the students and one for the teachers, which is kind of funny. Uh, this is the one for the students. They're all kind of riling the teacher there. And then here's the one for the teachers, the entrance for the teachers, <laughs> a teacher preaching over a snoring board class. So they got a sense of humor here. That's for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to maybe pop through a few of these pictures and you guys can stop me if you see anything interesting, but, uh, and I'll kind of, point out things that I know like this is the symbol in front of the Yale Daily News. Of course, we've got the owl of Minerva, this sort of triple rose here with the triple. And that's the same star. as the rose on the and, death card. And it also is the mm. same type of illustration as the like Tudor uh, Royal Dynasty or Royal House of England as well. Right. Right. And cab 55. I don't know if that's like the station name address thing, you know, radio station cab 55 of 55 to bring you, you pointed that out chance that new and Haven are both fives. So, I mean, kind of significant as well as the fifth square being the center of the whole town. Um, ah. but yeah, here's a better, more high resolution image. I don't know. I think that's Greek. Right? Yes. That's Greek there. I, I can't. If it was zoomed in a little bit, I could but, probably um, read it to you. Yeah. Here's the Yale Theater, which was recently bought or you know, donated David Geffen. They named it after him. So <laughs> Hollywood billionaire, kind of, I think he's had some weird connections. I've heard his name come up with some Hollywood conspiracies. And of course, his name is the now given to the Yale theater, the David Geffen Yale theater now. So, and what's so cool about going through Yale is like, you just find this kind of stuff everywhere. And I don't know if it was all made by Lee Laurie or one of these sculptors, but somebody just sculpted every single building and facade of, of Yale. And it's really cool to just kind of bug, you know, bop, around and, and see what you can notice and it's kind 
and I like what I said initially, like, hey, this didn't. Here's a kind of pyramidal. This is the Hall of Graduate Studies, and there's a Soldiers and Sailors monument right here in front of it, with a sort of eagle on top of the globe. Um, and there's like Ram Rock pile right there, which is also called a herm. Sometimes these are called herms, which is interesting. Um, or a cairn. This is the Stephen A. Schwartzman Center, also known as Woolsey Hall. And it's the geographic center point of Yale. And Schwartzman is the CEO of Blackstone, which is a private equity firm that you guys may be familiar with. They're, you know, big military industrial complex money. And uh, Schwartzman, Blackstone, that name Blackstone actually connects to the seal of Yale because Yale's seal has the phrase Urum Thurum written on it, which is in Hebrew. And it means white stone and black stone, which obviously this is. Blackstone, and they named the center of Yale after this guy. So obviously he's important. He's also a Skull and Bones uh, knight, so he was a member of the order. Um, I just have to point out real quick that um, when you're dealing with dome symbolism, I do relate it um, to the Dome of Heaven, the Vault of Heaven. So the very top of a dome would be the northern sky where the world axis crosses you know polaris the pole star right where the cosmos revolves around go ahead see this bike route sign right here yeah straight behind it is the graveyard we were looking at before and right behind this building you know next to it on this in the tomb uh, and a lot of as far as i know concerts take place in this building it's also kind of like the social center point of yale where students go to mingle and have like sort of group events and whatnot, but that's fascinating to point that out. And so much of Yale is also underground too, especially in this part of the campus that we're looking at. So you do have mm-hmm. like that heaven above, you know, earth in the middle and you know, who knows what below. <laughs> oh, you right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was just going to say that whenever I hear Blackstone, I feel like it's probably a reference to the philosopher's stone, or what's uh, been referred to as the lodestone, which is this idea that there's a stone at the center of Earth that is magnetic, which is why our uh, compasses point north. And so I think sometimes, mm. there you go. Um, I think sometimes when we're talking about the black stone, we're talking about the lodestone at the center of the plane, which is the philosopher's stone. So just thought I would throw that out there. Yeah, you'll see this in Hindu temples a lot. This is uh, Shiva Lingam. But also you could call the whole structure an Arga, which is the same as the word for the Ark or the Argo. And uh, yeah, it represents the whole Earth, Earth being the macro, the boat or the Ark being the micro. And man, <laughs> in a more micro scale, the baby and placenta is like the savior on the boat as well. Mm. And this always is sort of the root, in my opinion, of occult symbolism is this fractal human body, human reproductive uh, system, (laughs) the year and the regeneration through winter to spring and the destruction and regeneration of the entire world with the cataclysm mythos, whatever version it might be. And that all gives you sacred center tree and mountain symbolism wrapped up in it as well. 
Exactly. Yeah, man. Center Where place. Place center. Center place. Place center. <laughs> the, the ultimate alchemical wedding. When uh when I was in India, I asked a couple of guys, Indians, native Indians, about um what what the Shiva Lingam means to them, and one of the guys was really bashful. And he didn't want to tell me. And I just kind of like coaxed him into telling me. I'm like, well, what do you really think about the Shiva Lingam? And he basically said that it's a penis and a yoni, which is the same symbolism that you're talking about. The same. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Which yeah. means it's a herm. It's a herma. Yeah. yeah, totally. And then also too, the original Lingam from my understanding is literally, it's kind of like, uh, it looks just like a stone. It almost looks kind of like an egg or a yoni or a phallus. It's like all of these combined without the, uh, the circle. Um, portion of it, the base. What's also interesting that I always think about is, or lately I've been thinking about a lot, is this word lingam, meaning phallus. How that's, first of all, back to wisdom and, and head. You know, your penis has a head. Uh, Pallus means wisdom. Phallus sounds just like that. You know, P or PH. And then the word lingam, which means phallus, sounds a lot like lingua which means language. So in a way, how we transmit ourself into the future through our phallus, you know, and we create another being uh, who comes out head first. We also fill each other's head with the lingua, you know, our language, which is how our, our essence also carries forward into the future because that is the way that we are remembered by future people, even when we're gone or what we learned isn't lost or forgotten it's preserved or saved you know that's awesome man yeah no totally i grew up um you know uh, lingua as like a as a meal you know uh is tongue right so it's like cow or whatever goat tongue or something like that whoa yeah right speaking to what you're just saying right but also uh for me it hails to uh palace athena and she is com- absolutely Virgo. She, uh, you know, she refuses many, many suitors. Uh, she's in the earth element of the Virgo constellation. Uh, and, uh, and on the Virgo card in the Thoth deck, uh, thank you, Mario, for pointing it out, that it's clearly that sh- that red figure is a tongue. It's a very large tongue. And I always point out Langley, Virginia, in my territory's map, uh, Virgo is Virginia, and it is Langley that holds their tongue. They, rem- they remain a virgin. They withhold information. They don't have mm-hmm. a loose tongue. They don't go speaking willy-nilly. They're the secret keepers. And then I'll also throw in, while I'm at it, uh, Scranton. Scranton, in reverse, is not narcs. They're not narcs. They're the secret keepers. They're the tongue holders. They're not going to go flapping around their knowledge like we love to do. Excellent, dude. That's a potent weave. Hmm. Yeah. Now, when it comes to uh, what we're looking at now, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts in a moment. But before you share that, uh, take a look. This is, I mean, I call her the harpy, but there's another one on the other side, actually both sides, the the other side, you know, of the entire arcway and then on the right side of the arcway. Uh, And this is the art gallery bridge that connects the old art gallery with the new art gallery. And just on the other side of this gateway is the skull and bones tomb, which we can take a look at 
there's a clock tower above the bridge there. Um, there's the other sort of winged naked figure on the other side. And, uh, and yeah, Skull and Bones tomb. He's sort of a close up picture of it. This, this is the new edition, the much older edition on the other side. Um, I didn't really take a good picture of it that day, but either way, there's the tomb. I have other pictures of it, but oh, there's the cemetery again. Oh, here's Ashmoon. Here's that uh, sarcophagus I was mentioning before. But yeah, when it comes to that um, winged harpy figure, I mean, what what are your guys' thoughts there? Well, I think Virgo is a good interpretation. Virgo is often in the past shown with wings. Right. And uh, yeah, and she's guarding the the gateway of the fall equinox. And it looks like shafts of wheat possibly to the left of her. Nice. Oh, and she's reclining. This is totally See what's in her hand. Well, what is what's that? in either of their hands on both sides is uh, what looks like the top, the finish of a column, like where the column oh. meets the ceiling. Uh, oh, it's resting Virgo. on their knees right there. Yeah, that's totally Virgo. I, I agree with that for a few different reasons. Um, she's the queen of heaven. It's really no different than like Nuit or, or, or Newt um, from ancient Egypt. And she's always, you know, she is the ark. You'll see stars within her body, you know. And so um, whenever I see two of anything like this, by the way, it's not uncommon to have like two lions flanking a gateway of some sort or a door or whatever. But whenever you see two of anything, whether it's figures, animals or pillars or towers, there's always this implied middle way, which I refer to usually as like the third uh, pillar or third tower or potentially the first pillar or first tower. So when you're showing, um, you know, the entrance into um, the cemetery, right, you have those very noticeable pillars there. And then above you have the wing disc and then you have the two serpents and then you have that um, that disc right in the middle. And so I'm kind of under the opinion, too, that that disc potentially uh, could be a reference to Polaris, the pole star, and uh, actually not necessarily the sun, because. Polaris corresponds with the world axis, which would be that central pillar, uh, which is once again, um, this idea that this is how we get out of here, basically. Mm, mm, wow. Yeah. And you know, in a sense, you know, when you're getting out of college, your classmates, the people that you experience these trials and tribulations with, these are the people that you're going to ascend with, you know, into your, the mm. next stages of your life. And, where better to center the life of the campus than at the concert hall where like notes are literally ascending out of people into the, oh, the heavens. So nice. Yeah. And, and this, you know, to bring up the duality that you mentioned, this is actually my buddy here, Amos, who I met a while back, oh, 10 years ago. Now uh, I met the green and uh, he, he took me, you know, crossed and showed me a bunch of stuff. And one of the things he showed me was this right here on the Yale Law School. And he said that this is the law of the land right here. You either follow the rules like this guy who has a book, and I'll get to a clearer picture of it so you can see the, the detail. Uh, you either follow the rules or you don't. And, you know, there's two different paths in life for 
you based on how you choose. And you could see him, you know, with the good book there, he's got his Puritan buckle hat on his uh-huh. nice shoes and he's holding the book tight. He's really nothing else. Whereas this guy, I don't know, seems a little bit more fun. He's got a pipe. He's got this bottle that has a skull on it as well as an XXX. You can't really see that though. He's got some playing Whoa. cards, a cup in his hand and the tower behind him. And he's kind of huddled over in his chair. He, the other guy doesn't even have a chair. Yeah. That XXX there on the, on the potion, you know, on the bottle there, you know, it always stood out to me like, Hmm, yeah, this seems like how they went about, you know, the scales of justice in this country either became like on the fringes, you know, outlaw, a drunkard, a gambler, or you followed the rules and you went to church and became a good, you know, good person, right? Like this was the kind of culture of, uh, of the colonies. And it certainly is kind of the traditional culture of America. In many ways, you can kind of see this dichotomy between the outlaws and the law, you know, and like the good guys and the bad guys, the cowboys and the, you know, the, what do we call them? I guess you call them outlaws, but yeah, either way, you know, this is, this is important. And again, it's on the Yale law school, which is a huge, you know, such a, a beautiful building. I mean, if you're a fan of architecture, New Haven has to be a place you visit at some point in your life because I mean, some of the best architects in the nation have left and have gone on from New Haven to, you know, build buildings, you know, across the country places, you know, that are probably out there with you there in St. Louis chance. And, you know, you Gabe out there in Indiana, they got tons of stuff I saw when I went out to Indiana. Mario, I don't know where you're located, but, you know, wherever it is, I'm sure you can find some stuff like this, too. And, yeah, I know we're kind of coming to a close here, so unless there's some more. Non- oh, I just looked, realized the time there, Mark. Um, other worth so <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you are more up, than welcome to, to uh, maybe bow out. I think we're a little lagged, so I'm sorry for talking over you if that's what you're experiencing. There was a little bit of choppiness oh, no, coming no. on your end, but yeah, um, I think Don't Gabe worry. and Mario will probably keep hanging for a while. <laughs> you're free to you're free to leave. Thank you for all you showed us. But you can also <laughs> hang with us as long as you want. We'll we'll probably go another little oh, while. Oh no, no. Sure. I just yeah, no, I'm down to hang for a little longer. I just wanted to kind of bring my uh presentation to a close because uh yeah yeah that's all i really have to share at the moment but i do have a you guys are familiar with my scene scenes edition one and two this is actually a lot of what i've showed you guys today is going into my third edition of the scene it's the next booklet uh and it's titled aesthetic which i'm not going to explain the whole acronym title now because I don't have it in front of me, but it's going to be about Strange New Haven. And I thought I think, acronyms were supposed to be so that you could remember it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shit. I'm just giving you shit. That is a good point. You know, you'd think that it would work that way, but you know, this, no, I try to make the acronyms as complicated as possible. So <laughs> but, uh, but, the scene so. stuff was fun, man. After we talked about it the last time, I actually went on a big scene adventure and recorded it all. And I had this ambition, like, I'm going to make like a little, I'm going to make a video about my adventure and like, you know, reveal it all. But I never did. And I just but have all you, the footage just sitting on my hard drive. You, 
can you join Mike and I on our show to talk about it? Because we actually had somebody on recently, Austin, uh, who's an Olympic bobsledder who went and did a scene journey with his Olympic bobsledder wife. And they had this really crazy thing that occurred. And that's going to be on a new episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. But Chance, we've mentioned that several times. So we got to have you on that show and talk. About I've it. been hoping and praying for it. I, I miss, I miss, uh, our buddy Juan, you know, like it's been a while since I actually got to oh, chat Mike, with him. Yeah. I want to have him back on a Vibrant or Interverse. Um, so, he's, yeah, he's please, let's do that. Busy. He's been super busy. I haven't recorded many episodes with him myself recently, but yeah, we, we should do that. And uh, yeah, so people who are familiar with Scene Edition 1 and 2, you may be excited to find out that Scene Edition 3 has a lot of this research incorporated in it. And in a way, uh, it'll, sort of I think give people uh the format to go and do this kind of investigation wherever they live, right? That's kind of the point of these booklets is to not just share information that I know about, but give it in a way that's kind of like a method or a routine or you know, something that people can follow through with and and gather their own results and findings. So so yeah, and also you know, I'm I'm working on a new podcast. The first episode is already out. It's titled Strange New Haven, The Order of Skull and Bones. And essentially, we're going to be going through the, the information step by step chronologically. And the first episode is about, you know, uh, kind of setting the stage. And the next episode will we'll begin the historical investigation. But uh, Michael Wan and a bunch of other people participated in it in their own way. Some of the audio is being used from my show, like archived audio. And so it's going to be a totally different experience than what you're used to. If you tune into the, my family thinks I'm crazy podcast where we do interviews, this is going to be something more similar to like the Penny Royal podcast, which is, was a big inspiration for me as a creative person. And as a podcaster, like, you know, how can I take things up a notch? You know, I'm already familiar with how to produce a show and I like producing my interview show, but I also like the idea of uh, challenging myself. And I thought, why not try, you know, that genre of podcasting? Cause pod, you know, Penny Royal is in a genre of podcasting that's very unique because it's, it's nonfiction. It's paranormal. It's, it's narrative. It's kind of like a docu-cast. Right, DocuCast, and I've been calling a it a serial documentary. documentary podcast, kind of. Yeah, I've been calling it a documentary because that's you know that's a term that people understand. But you're absolutely right. I probably should call it a docu series because that's Something that's like what that. this is going to be. And I, I think if you'll allow me, I might even include some of what we talked about today because Mario, sure. Gabe, and, and Chance yourself, you guys all included really fascinating takes on. Really good idea, man. You're like, you do so much content that to do a content that compiled other places of content and got the greatest hits and sound bites is actually really smart. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank I've you. got something that uh, I wanted to present to the panel here because I'm just kind of like, it's burning a hole in my pocket. <laughs> Because <laughs> I think I, I think I just stumbled on something major. <laughs> so I got to give credit over to the our chatters. Gooby Goo mentioned the Kachari Mudra, which has to do with a it's a tongue mudra. It's like a tongue posture. You've probably heard if you've been you know taught meditation. Sometimes I'll tell you to put the tongue on the roof of your mouth or on the palate of your 
top of your mouth. So I did a little digging into this mudra and oh my goodness. Okay, so I don't think it'll take me too long to explain, but let me get the right screen shared here. Sorry, I thought I had that ready. And this is, you know, Kachari mudra posture. And it all has to do with locking your prana, which is your chi or your life force into this middle column. So here's your tower, you know, symbol going on. And this is supposed to basically activate Kundalini, keep your own, keep your life force energy in your vessel, keep it from escaping. And the more you build it up, the more you access divine consciousness and even like superhuman abilities. Probably if there's any truth to stories of people going and meditating in a cave and not eating or being buried alive and going into suspended animation and then being dug up days, weeks, months later and being alive. There are a lot of accounts of things like that. So there may very well be something to this whole idea of locking prana into your body and what it can do. Uh, I don't know. But one of the things about this mudra is it involves one of the pranic locks involves your tongue being on the roof of your mouth. And actually what they do after you've stretched out your tongue and practiced this for long enough is they cut, they, they slightly sever. Oh. The, you know, the underside of your tongue, you know, that, that, um, kind of like nerve, uh, weird attachment where it's like in the middle, it kind of sticks out. So there's a very strong correlation in my opinion to this tongue mutilation mudra and circumcision. That was the first thing that came into my mind. I'm like, well, the tongue, the Mario already brought up tongues and then ling lingua, you speak tongues with your tongue, you know, speak linguas languages with your tongue etc. And we already connected it to the phallus. But the interesting thing is that this uh, ridge at the bottom of your tongue that they sever so that you can get your tongue way up there in the roof of your mouth is called the lingua frenulum, which is <laughs> like literally that means bird language <laughs> in Latin. Lingua is language and frenulum is little birdie or little bird. So well, that's interesting. And the other part of your body that has a frenulum named such in medical anatomy is your penis. I'll just go jump over to this page. It basically, the frenulum is the underside of the penis on the side close to the scrotum, like a bridge of tissue connecting your foreskin to the head of your penis. So this is the, the function of this frenulum is to allow the foreskin to contract over the glands of the penis. So very interesting <laughs> that there is, it's literally this thing in the tongue is connected to symbolically the part of your penis that is getting clipped. So they're clipping their tongues, they're clipping their dicks. There's some kind of, I don't know where to, where else to go with that other than that, you know, is this the kind of thing that do we, we already know Hillary looks pretty like demonic and almost Kali like, <laughs> And Kali has always got that tongue out way too long. Is that because they're doing this mudra of, uh, that literally lets their tongue stretch further? Very bizarre. Wow. You know, it's almost like the t stretching of the tongue is like them stretching their tower of Babel higher to heaven in some yeah. way, their middle column. Dude, that is fascinating. I love this. Um, I'll probably follow up with this. Um, but I just want to say that. Gabe, you're talking about the thought deck, right? With the tongue 
the the hermit looks like he's literally a tongue, a symbolic tongue, an abstract kind of tongue. And that card corresponds with Virgo, the virgin, right? So here you have a phallic symbol on the card that represents the virgin. And arguably, that's who he's looking for. That That's who the hermit is looking for, his other half, right? And so um, it's really interesting that that's the case. And we're talking about phallic symbolism in the foreskin. The foreskin is the veil of our penis. And so they're removing your veil. And so um, that also corresponds with Virgo. And so um, she's heavily veiled um, in certain illustrations. And so um, that all has to do with what she actually represents. The idea is that she is unveiled and deep within her veil, deep within her darkness um, is the masculine energy. And so this very much relates to the idea of Sophia and the Demiurge, basically. And so there's a long tradition that the the chaotic queen of heaven, the primordial goddess, basically has a light deep within her, veiled within her, and that it comes out at a certain point. And so she gives birth to the first masculine energy, uh, to the first patriarchal figure, if you will, you know, and so veil symbolism, foreskin symbolism, Virgo, Tong. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Nice. It makes you know? me think of how Jehovah Yadhe Vavhe Tetragrammaton transliterates in alternate spelling, but equally valid to Eve. That even yeah. you get that sense when you read like Nag Hammadi creation story and all that, that Eve was actually the one that made Adam, not Jehovah, but Jehovah and Eve are the same person if you are looking at it from the Hebrew perspective. Totally, yeah, totally. Um, you know, go ahead, Slick. Well, one thing that, uh, I'm getting a lot of mileage out of, and it's taking a long time to incorporate into my symbolic awareness is when I learned that Arcturus, which is the, it's the, the crotch of Bootes. Bootes is the kite constellation. It is in Virgo and it is at the very, at the crotch, literally, because uh, he has these two little legs uh, at the bottom of the kite. And so it's literally at the point of his of his kite shaped triangle um, that that star is the markation point of the lunar calendar. It marks the beginning, the initiation, the new cycle of the lunar calendar. The beginning is the arche, the head, which is Arcturus. Right. Arcturus. And so we have a virgin, a Virgo right next to Boothes, and we have a birthing. A beginning of a new cycle, but it's all in a lunar context, and so it has that op- the uh, it's the opposite side of the spring equinox, where uh, we're going into the darkness of the underworld. Uh, so all of this birthing in Virgo, in the uh, this newness in this uh, over in the uh, in the fall, uh, it very much is kind of bringing my attention more to the lunar calendar to that 13 cycle lunar calendar. And, uh, and then I'll just throw out that, you know, the art of war is a 13 chapter book. Anytime I hear 13 nowadays, I'm thinking, aha, they're speaking lunar. They're speaking in the subconscious in the darkness in the underworld veiled references. Like you said, the veil. Nice, nice. Good call. Uh, death card being the 13th card as well. Right. Um, and then this is why, by the way, uh, we have the tradition of brides, wearing the veil and she's always revealed by a uh, patriarchal figure right brilliant brilliant um and 
one thing I've been getting into lately is um, the muses. There, there are nine muses. And one of the muses, her name is Thalia. And she is the muse of comedy, comedic plays. And one of her symbols that she carries, one, uh, often she's carrying just a mask with a smiley face. But then another symbol she carries is sometimes a crook or a, or a, a shepherd's crook or a cane. And I'm thinking about the death card. It has the sickle, right? And then I'm thinking, now, where in the symbols of death, where is there a smiley face? Gabriel, a you skull. heard of the Black Dahlia? I have, but I haven't looked into it. It has to do with, like, serial killer, right? Yep. Oh, okay. That I think so, yeah. Dahlia is Dahlia, no TMD switch. Nice. It's not really, nice. I don't know if it has to do with a serial killer as much as it's an unsolved death of a uh of a um actress at the time and some people oh, okay my bad the serial killer that might have been like paid to do it or like mk ultra style you know or maybe it was a group like a cult type thing where they you know killed her for some reason but yeah no i i don't think they've ever figured out who did that like it hasn't been connected to any known serial killers if any serial killers there, there's a guy who came Sorry out with a book actually there gabe i just thinking talia dahlia i was like where have we seen this right there's a guy who came out with a book who basically claims that his father was the killer and it's really interesting because his father i believe was uh, a surgeon so i think his last name is hodell if anyone wants to look it up, but it's kind of fascinating because the way she was murdered, it was like surgically done. And like, my understanding yeah. is she was like bloodlet, like there, it was a very clean job. And so they believe that someone who was a professional in, in some medical field um, had a hand in doing this. And then also when they, uh, they mutilated her essentially. And bisected uh, at the waist. Yeah. 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 Totally. And they put her in a ritualistic sort of pose basically was she that, was beautiful was that in london or uk uh, i think it was la right oh it was yeah, california yeah, she was found in an abandoned lot in los angeles interesting yeah, elizabeth smart i believe so uh the the final uh punchline of my weave was that uh so if the hook is a symbol of death like the sickle is a symbol of death and this is all thalia this uh muse of comedy then could we also say that a skull is a smiley face mask because all skulls are smiling. And if that's the case, <laughs> then the smiley face killer is a funny motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Show yeah. that card again, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. So the world axis via which how we travel to the other side, Crowley is literally showing it as his penis. So that is the world axis. That is the bridge to heaven, in my opinion. Um, he's also weaving together new souls sort of thing. But I think it's kind of all the same symbolism, pretty much. Well, so we look at this. The eye bone is like also a harp. Yep. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Yeah, this uh, this card is uh, very correspondent with the Hercules constellation, which is a minor decand of... I'm pretty sure it's Scorpio and it's a, you know, he's got the Scorpio glyph on here, but if you 
take the constellation of Hercules and you superimpose it onto this card, it's a perfect fit. It's it's a fascinatingly perfect fit. Nice, nice. I I left you big too long. Sorry. <laughs> I think that's good. So, Mark, uh, um, go ahead. Well, well, I wanted to say uh, thank you for uh, showing us a picture of Amos, man. You know, I've heard of this fella. He's like a living legend, and now I got a face to go with it. So thanks for sharing him with us. That's really cool. That. Yeah, he's a normal guy. I mean, I'm probably going to go visit him soon. I have this really cool box that uh, my friend who makes these things called Hit Kits sent me. Oh, where did it go? It's not next to me. Um, yeah, this guy sent me this really cool box to hold like weed and stuff in and uh, has Geronimo on it. So I thought, you know, since I already oh. have a couple of them, I think I might give it to him as a gift. But it pops open. Really cool stuff. I mean, not to promote, but hit kit. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you. You know, Amos, cool. I have him to thank for a lot. You know, he definitely kind of like taught me about skull and bones, but he also taught me about native American, you know, uh, plant medicine and prayer and how those two can be used in combination, which definitely led to me thinking differently about how I engaged with drugs and psychedelics and alcohol and whatnot. And if I didn't, you know, I could have gone down a pretty bad rough road, you know, especially, Considering I dropped out of college sometime after I learned about all that and uh, and I ended up in a fraternity, funny enough, after dropping out of college and this fraternity happened to be like kind of uh, in the same regard as like Skull and Bones and whatnot. It was founded by students, uh, but not at Yale at a different college in town. And uh, and yeah, it, it got banned from their campus and ran itself like outside of the domain of the camp, of the college. And that allowed for guys like me who didn't go to any college to be a part of it. So I went and joined this group because a couple of my buddies went into it. And funny enough, one of the stories that I learned about when joining this group was that they had stolen a flag, a Jolly Roger flag from the Skull and Bones, um, not their tomb itself, but their dormitory, because they do have their own like building where they have residence for the senior students in their last year. So a little bit of, you know, another rumor there. But yeah, allegedly the flag that they had came from Skull and Bones' tomb. Interesting. Um, I was going to ask if by chance you have uh, picked up any strange sort of energetic qualities around Yale. I'm not sure if you even pick up on that kind of stuff. I'm pretty dense, to be honest, so I generally don't. But there have been times where I'm definitely picking up some vibes about a place. Has anything like that um, on a more subtle energetic level come to you while you're touring the campus or anything? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny that you just posted the comment about um, about Hanuman here because I've had this since I was a kid. I got this in Mystic, Connecticut at the uh, Mystic Seaport. Um, but yeah, I think I'm pretty sensitive to energies. That's why I think I gravitated to that graveyard spot in the first place. You know, uh, 
my town that I grew up in is like 400 years old. New Haven's almost 400 years old. So like there, there's a lot of ancient energies here that if you spend enough time kind of just sitting patiently, you might pick up on it. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about sensing energy to go and verbalize it. It's more of like an intuitive thing, you know. And uh, when it comes to the tombs it's themselves, they definitely have like an underground aspect to them that's apparent. Um, and yeah, the, there's definitely like a, a sense of like uh, classism in New Haven that's really apparent. Do so you know even, of any like actual underground tunnels or passageways connecting oh, things yeah. in New Haven like cuz I live in a pretty small town and even we've got an underground complex that is guarded by security guards and can't go in there and they claim that it's for storage but yet there's plenty of space above ground for storage why would you need tunnels and underground buildings and such an elaborate beehive network like that you know so I mm. figure in a place like New Haven there's probably some serious underground stuff mm. Yeah there's a there's the Pitkin tunnel that goes through six, the six square and that goes under the, uh, the Connecticut financial center city hall. And it's basically just like private parking for important people who work in those buildings and used to be able to just drive through it until nine 11 when they just made, you know, everything was a security threat. Right. So they, you know, up the security in a place like that, considering there's federal buildings and whatnot, but, yeah, there's tons of rumors and my father actually works in the water department. He's been in the underground sections of New Haven. So I know for a fact there's tunnels all all over New Haven. I think it's a part of most universities infrastructure, you know, to have a, a tunnel, especially in a town like New Haven, where the university and the town concurrently grew. I mean, you know, Yale's uh, something like 60 years younger than New Haven. And it really wasn't until 1717 that they even had their first building in New Haven. But, uh, but yeah, the underground aspects of New Haven are pretty important to keeping like a campus like that running and being able to have like janitors and all sorts of different resources moved around the campus. You couldn't do it unless there was an underground aspect to it. You know, there's all the streets and the busy traffic of, above you can't you can't pull it off so yeah it's interesting i think there's a lot of rumors but one thing uh that's interesting is behind the beinecke memorial library which or i always say that it's the beinecke rare book and manuscript library across the way from the sterling memorial library and inside the beinecke they have the voynich manuscript they have a copy of the egyptian book of the dead they have a original Gutenheim or Gutenberg Bible and probably hundreds of other rare documents that we don't know about and is underground. Most of it's underground and next to the Beinecke rare book manuscript library is a underground sculpture garden that you can see from a viewing wall. You look down to see it. And it was built by Osama Noguchi, the same guy that my friend, I think you guys know about Chad Stemke, who talks about the Stargate in Detroit. Wow. Built by Osama Noguchi. Well, they built a pyramid, a cube, and a circle in this underground sculpture garden out of this, I think, Vermont marble, uh, granite, you know, this Vermont stone. It's pretty high quality marble, white marble. 
I think it might be a different type of stone, but either way, it's very interesting. And the energy there for sure. I mean, when it comes to high street, you have skull and bones, you have the Harkness tower, you have the first uh, library that was ever built uh, at Yale, the Dwight, what's now the Dwight chapel. Then you have the Memorial quadrangle. You have the law school. You have the Sterling Memorial library You have the Beinecke Memorial uh, manuscript library. And then it all that everything at that on that road ends at the entrance to that graveyard. And then of course the book and snake tomb as well. So yeah, wow. this area is that's, that's like the main spine of energy that I've kind of felt is along high street and high street itself implies like, you know, the highest street in elevation. I don't know if that's the case with high street in new Haven. I think there's other streets that are higher in elevation, but uh, it's definitely the highest in like infamy or, power, you know, in the energy spheres, you know, it draws the attention in the eye. So the Voynich manuscript, all those hit a chord for me, like the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, that's a, uh, it turns out like the, the location of the where the Gutenberg press was first uh, released. It corresponds with the same location that Martin Luther put the 95 theses and banged it on to uh, put that public notice out. It's also the same city or regent, uh, because the name has changed over time, but generally, it's also the same place where the Nuremberg Code took pla- took place. And all of those are places where history has spun on a dime. And then, uh, just one more fun kind of weave is that there is a printing press constellation, and it's underneath the legs of Monoceros. And Monoceros is inside of the Winter Triangle that is much like a. Uh, it's like Santa's bag thrown over the shoulder of Orion. If you look at the winter triangle, you'll see that it's if Orion was Santa, his, his bag full of goodies would be a, ba- a triangle shape with the Monoceros unicorn. And then under the legs of the unicorn is the divine heavenly printing press. So that's pretty powerful and significant. And then I just, because uh, I can't go without mentioning, when I hear Voynich manuscripts, I get... <laughs> I had a very personal experience with a an shiver in- goes down his spine. Uh, yep. Speaking of spines, <laughs> uh, I had a very personal experience with the infernal spirit of sloth, who is known as Belphegor. And uh, Belphegor has a mathematical symbol uh, for a mathematical concept called Belphegor's Prime. And the symbol that they used is was extracted from the Voynich manuscripts. And it is essentially the symbol of pi, but flipped upside down. It's an upside down pi symbol. Uh, but it looks like a bird in flight. And if you look at uh, American Eagle, the symbol of American Eagle is just a flying bird. But it actually is also the Belphegor's prime symbol. And so uh, all of that just comes to mind right away. It's a long, sordid story. But I have to say, like, uh, there is something very powerful that I've experienced. Well, dude, we, just re- we just found out that the lingua whatever on your dick is the little birdie, the thing that pulls the foreskin down. Oh, my God. The Latin oh word God. is 
is little birdie. <laughs> you guys, you guys aren't East Coasters, so I'll t- I'll tell you this little secret. But in on the East Coast, a lot of people refer to their penis as their bird. That must go back way far. That makes sense. You're flipping the bird. You know what is the middle yeah. finger? Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, it's especially in Philadelphia, they say it all the time in Philadelphia. But you know, go birds and uh, and suck <laughs> my bird. <laughs> those those are nice. two phrases that are said throughout Philadelphia. So, suck my bird and go go birds. <laughs> that sounds like Philly for sure, man. Interesting city, obviously. Um, quick question: Is there only one Voynich or Voynich man- manuscript, or are there multiple copies? Yeah. Just there's one. only one. They, wow. Well, if they are copies, this is the original. They might have digital, you know, re, they might have like kind of, uh, I'm sure they reproductions. You know, yeah. They like, what is it called? Uh, scanned it, photo scanned yeah. it. But as far as I script wouldn't be a bit for anyone to just go in and see, you'd have to be like somebody with like, you know, heading towards a degree in linguistics or something, you know, that relates to something like that before you could even get your hands on it. Like the void, like the Beinecke, they do let people come in and take looks at, you know, you can look through certain things and you have to do it in the library. You can't take things out of the library, but I imagine with something like that, they don't, uh, they don't let people view it just, uh, you know, out of the blue. You have to make an appointment and, uh, you know, tell them who you are and all this other stuff. But they do have a copy of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is interesting considering all this stuff we've talked about. And the fact that the whole library itself is like a giant coffin because these advanced, super high tech libraries, one of the fail safes that they have involved in building them is to prevent fires from destroying all these valuable archives. They have this like argon or some sort of gas system that floods the building, removing all the oxygen if a smoke alarm goes off. So I think you have something like 30 seconds to evacuate the facility uh, before you're suffocated by this argon gas, you know, in order to preserve the book. So God forbid you're one of the security guards tasked with that and you, you stay, you get stuck behind when the door shuts and, you know, next thing you know, you're preserved there with all the books in Argon, like, you know, Han Solo or something. (laughs) (laughs) According to, there's a fact check that I found that this, uh, Bionic, Bionic, Bionic library does not kill people whenever they put the fire out. It doesn't suffocate people, but I oh, think maybe, maybe they do. Well, that's cool. The, that's cool is because the Book of the Dead wouldn't have been kept in a library. The Book of the Dead, it was intended to be buried with somebody important who had just passed away so that they can read it in the afterlife. So uh, they really should probably keep it near the graveyard, if anything. Interesting. Uh, so, so the Voynich manuscripts uh, passed through the hands of Edward Kelly. And so it has uh, provenance that attaches to John D. very, very quickly uh, was in the circles of John D. So that's very fascinating. And uh, n- just knowing uh, some f- firsthand knowledge about this Belfagor spirit character uh, uh egregore let's say uh thomas from uh paranoid american 
he was making some artific- some AI art. He was just putting out this art, like, you know, putting in his little parameters and it was giving him all these cool looking demonic beings. And he wanted them to be like patriotic. So they got American flag tattoos and they're all cool looking. But he didn't put in the parameters for Belphegor, the infernal spirit of sloth. That was not part of what he told the computer to do. And it still gave him a character that was laden, I mean, absolutely laden with symbolism of Belphegor. And I recognized it right away. And I asked him, I was like, did you tell this thing to do that? And he's like, no, I didn't. I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And it was after he and I came together and talked about it. it again, so many things come to me after the show. But I realized this damn thing had the symbol for Belphegor's prime as its headdress. It had these crazy horns and these other horns going up the whole thing. And it was taking a squat like it was trying to take a dump. There it is. Holy shit, Chance. (laughs) Holy shit, you got it, man. This thing is speaking. I mean, so if Thomas is its creator or its father, it's bringing genetics from something else into the art. That's that's the only thing I want to say. It's speaking over our head and it's being very impeccable with its communicating of this infernal concept of sloth. <laughs> the top comment here is from Mario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's wild, man. You can't I'm, be too sure. So I'm thinking still right about the I want to just put a little more out there on the weave about the <laughs> Lingua, lingual frenulum of the tongue slash penis that like I looked into it a little more and apparently this is something they cut on babies. They cut it on babies just like they would cut, you know, the foreskin of the baby because they call it getting tongue tied, tongue tied that your tongue is like the lingual frenulum is too thick. So they got to cut that to help with breastfeeding or like, apparently it's just, you know how doctors love to cut and remove and extract and all that stuff. Apparently this is like, you know, they're looking for reasons to cut this thing and begin back to like the, the aspect of this conversation from the beginning that we're talking also when we discuss these secret societies about the therapeutic, the healers, the medical industry, et cetera. Um, you know, wouldn't be like, wouldn't be surprised if there was a ritual cutting of the frenulum for members of a society like this, maybe when, in one of those eight ancient societies, they have a right like that. Man, it makes you wonder, like, it's one of those things, like, who's the first one who did it? What purpose does it serve later? You know, like we know about certain traumas being instilled early so that they can uh, even imply the trauma later in the child's life, you know, just to say like, maybe they have a phrase like hold your tongue and the child is like extra struck by the impact of that phraseology. You know what I mean? Hold your tongue. (laughs) Yeah. They use this, they do the frenulum cut on the penis for people to help them last longer (laughs) and not premature ejaculate. So trippy, man. So trippy. And and it kind of proves that we we are the first computers. The idea of programming something in advance so that later on the behavior could be uh, the program can get run uh, later 
it just proves that we are the original pro, uh, computers, that uh, these weird cuts and edits and addendums are just uh, in place to be uh, called upon later in life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I know we've talked about this before, and we'll get into it next week because we're going to have the uh, Astro Herbalism Aries episode. Um, but, you know, it's so perfect to talk about circumcision and some of these rituals during Aries season itself. And so uh, we've talked about the fact that the Majin shield, right, the Jewish tools that are used for ritual circumcision, one of the tools looks very much like the Aries glyph in and of itself. It looks like the horns of Aries. And uh, there's a card that corresponds with the Emperor card, the Aries card from the Solobuska. And uh, this figure has uh, the handle of a sword coming out from between his legs. And it looks exactly like that same shield. So um there's a lot to be said about circumcision and Aries as well, pretty much. And so uh, I'll make some notes and we'll get into it next week. That'll be a good time. Sweet. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, guys, I think this is a good place to move our way toward a wrap up. I'm, I've had a very enjoyable time. Mark, thanks for uh, hanging out with us. And, you know, we kind of got into a bunch of random stuff here after your presentation. So no, no rush to get us off screen or anything. If you've got closing thoughts or weaves to attach to some of these things we brought up or you just want to plug your things again, all of that is very welcome. Right. Thanks on. for Thank hanging you. with us. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's all all very interesting stuff. Uh, I was trying to follow along and see what I could pull up, but uh, but yeah, I'll just let people you know follow up with me with the scene, strange New Haven, uh, the podcast series available on my Substack and Patreon, and then that that third edition of the scene, which follows up on a lot of the stuff we talked about today, will be available on my. Uh, Ko-Fi store by tomorrow. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you the links to all that. So maybe not for the live audience, but uh, for, for people listening, check out the, the Ko-Fi store. Uh, people listening now, check that out tomorrow. Follow up with me uh, with the links in the description. My family thinks I'm crazy.com to tune into the podcast. And, uh, and yeah, Chance, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Gabe and Mario, great to see you both again. And thanks for adding to this uh knowledge basis that's gonna you know evolve into the uh the, the podcast series that's coming out you know whether whether excerpts from this conversation make it in or not i definitely feel like uh you know i'm gonna integrate some of this knowledge into it because yeah the, the whole virgo uh winged figures and you know this is all stuff that i had not occurred to me and i appreciate your insights yeah buddy this is the most fun thing for us. <laughs> we totally. Love this. totally. Yeah, man, like I'm glad. A treat when somebody shows up with like, okay, here's a bunch of images and symbols. Uh, let's talk about them. You know, <laughs> it's a party. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm, I'm stoked that we just gave birth to the frenulum concept. That's going to get a lot of mileage uh, for years to come. I'm sure <laughs> it is <laughs> like, we just found something major. We just, the tongue we just, and the penis and all of the connections between the tongue and the penis and yeah, language. We just, we just birthed a new egregore here tonight, folks. You witnessed it. Um, so uh, I just, uh, I wasn't, I actually was going to do some research when I heard we were going to have Mark on, uh, I know we've touched on this. Uh, I think one of the first times you were on Weaving Spiders with us, Mark. I've like 
kind of hinted at this and maybe we should get together sometime and uh, weave this out. But uh, I remember you talking about the judge's cave and that led me to look into that history of those judges hiding out in the cave just outside of town and their adventure there. And it was fascinating to me because you had brought that into my mind just as I was doing research on um, Martha Carrier. I'm pretty sure it's Martha. Yeah, Martha or Margaret Carrier. She was one of the first witches, one of the first witches to be executed in the uh, Salem witch trials. But the reason she was on my radar was not because of her role in the witch trials, was because of her husband, Thomas Carrier. And he has a super fascinating story. And that is that he was the bodyguard of King Charles the first. Remember, firsts are sacred. And he was his bodyguard. Um, uh, so, and he ended up, uh, those judges uh, convinced him to be the axe man. And so Thomas Carrier was the bodyguard of King Charles I, and he was convinced to be the executioner of King Charles I. And when Often they chopped- that role did go hand in hand with uh, uh, King's bodyguards being executioners. Yes. So he they alluded chops- to it in Thor 3 <laughs> with the executioner character Scourge uh, being the bodyguard of Hela. Oh, that is interesting. It's so fascinating how these traditions are preserved through art. Um, but so when they chop off King Charles's head, all the people, uh, they all want to dab their her, their handkerchiefs in the blood of the king because the blood of the king is sacred. But historically, that moment that that axe dropped, that is when sovereignty dissolved unto the people. And in that one moment, everybody became the king of themselves. It's a highly sacred moment. It's so significant. And then he ends up, uh, he gets arrested and put in prison, but he breaks out of prison the first night and he gets on a ship and he sails to the new world and he takes on a new identity and he meets Martha and they get married. She becomes Martha Carrier. And the thing that just drives me crazy about the story is the name Carrier. And the idea, it's like seeding the concept. Where did the head go? Who carried the head after they chopped it off of the king? Did Thomas Carrier bring the sacred skull to the new world? Or did the judges, were the judges the ones who carried the skull to the new world? And I'm just, I'm just speculating. I'm just throwing all this out there because it seems to be like hinted at in innuendo throughout the story. Uh, but then Thomas Carrier, he marries Martha. Uh, they go into Mass- into their uh, somewhere near Salem, and they're not welcome because Thomas is six foot nine. He's incredibly tall, and they think uh, this. Uh, he's a newcomer. He's an outsider. These people, there's something weird about him, and we don't want him around. And oh, then- short guys cannot abide a tall person. Yeah, man. Yes. <laughs> And so they, Mark they gets it. I'm sure. I'm sure Mark gets it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my best friend for the longest time is like, I don't want to make fun of him, but he's like five four or something like that. I well, mean, you know, he's, he's cool. He's cool. cool. There are exceptions to the rule, but I do generally think that humanity shrunk overall because shorter guys get upset about tall guys. I just think that. I think Owen Benjamin's right. Height supremacy is real. That's why I like Mark and Gabe. They're both taller than me. 
I have something to look up to. I don't know about Mario. Mario could be tall. Don't know. I am not tall. <laughs> it's all right. You're still cool. So one one of these days, Mark, we're going to have to uh, bring those two stories together. Like I'll, you know, I'll bring all the details and the the nitty gritty, and we'll uh we'll have to. Uh, I want to know where that head is, man. Because if it's if if the judges kept it, and there was some kind of a communion in Judge's Cave, uh, that's right on a ley line. That's on a sacred ley line, and for the king's blood to be planted or seated on a sacred ley line. That's like a fiction novel that needs to be written or a, a semi-fictional novel that needs to be written. Mm. Wow. Yeah. You gave me a lot to look into there. Wow. Thanks, Gabe. I appreciate that. Let's, let's follow up on that sooner than later. I think that, uh, that may make its way into the, the docu-series for sure. I love it. I love it, man. All right. Glad you came tonight, brother. Yeah, dude. I like your style, man. Thank you so much for uh, presenting all of that information, the photos. Very, very interesting stuff. So if I'm ever in your neck of the woods, man, I'll have to hit you up and uh, get one of those tours. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, oh, yeah. By the way, anybody, you know, the three of you, of course, more than welcome. But if people are interested, I have a telegram, uh, Strange New Haven telegram. If you're in the area, you can sign up to that telegram. And uh, I'm going to be posting pictures in there, but also like, you know, uh, updates on when the next tour is going to be. And of course, if you're traveling in, don't be shy. Email me. I've already done that uh, twice now for people who are from, you know, one guy was traveling through from Texas and he came and got a tour not too long ago. Shout out to Carson. So, uh, so yeah, if people want to come and get a tour from me and they're in the area, just hit me up on Instagram. Uh, my family thinks I'm crazy on Instagram. That's probably the best place. Or if you're on Telegram, uh, join the, join the strange New Haven, uh, telegram chat. I think it's just t.me slash strange New Haven. Very awesome. <clears throat> All, everybody make sure that you're, uh, subscribed on your podcast app to my family thinks I'm crazy and also go visit symbolic studies on YouTube or symbolic studies.com slick dissident also on YouTube. They are all linked in the description for this episode. Looking forward to premiering. It won't be live, but we will be premiering an episode on Sunday night with George Wiseman, the creator of the Aqua Cure. And in that conversation, which was a very good one, I did not yet have an Aqua Cure, but behind me, you can see I now have one. Ha ha. Pretty excited about it. So I'm sure you'll hear me talking about that in the future, but that's what you have to look forward to on Sunday night. A really great conversation with an inventor. And uh, overall, just genius guy. <laughs> and George Wiseman's always fun to hang with. Uh, hit me up for tunings, chance at interversepodcast.com, or, you know, we could sling some cards, get some divinatory guidance. You know, here we are. This is our guild. <laughs> We're sharing what we know. Anyway, it's uh, been fun hanging, everybody. Have a great night, and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one. Much love. <laughs>